The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. everybody and welcome back to critically acclaimed the movie review podcast where good taste and bad taste blow up they just explode that's it sometimes they do they're like nitro and glycerin my name is william bibiani i am a critic everybody calls me bibs uh, my name is whitney seibold i too am a critic i don't need a cool nickname i'm just gonna live with what i have and uh this week on critically acclaimed we're reviewing a bunch of movies wouldn't wouldn't you know it huh <laughs> uh, we're reviewing Borat, subsequent movie film, the sequel to Borat, currently on Amazon Prime. Uh, the Witches, a remake of The Witches by Robert Zemeckis, uh, currently on HBO Max. Uh, on the Rocks, the latest film from Sofia Coppola, now on Apple Plus. Apple TV Plus. Apple TV Plus, excuse me. Yeah, they, they, they all got kind of letters and symbols and stuff. Uh, Rebecca, a remake of Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca, currently on Netflix. And, of course, the most important film of the week... Tremors, Shrieker Island, the seventh film Mm -hmm. in the Tremors series. And over Mm -hmm. at the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, we will be talking about, because our patrons demanded it, Neil Marshall's post-apocalyptic Doomsday. That's right. That was the one you guys voted for. Uh, We we are big boosters of the Tremors series. We have been for a long, long time. Uh, we, like all sane people, are huge fans of the 1990 film Tremors, mm-hmm. but we have also seen every one of their subsequent sequels, and we have, and in, and the TV series. Yeah, not the uh, failed Kevin Bacon pilot that never made it out. No one's seen that. Mm-hmm. We look forward to seeing that someday, but that's the only piece of Tremors media that we have not yet uh, shoved inside our eye holes. <laughs> and yeah, we are a big fan of this series, and we're going to talk a lot about what the series does right, and how important Burt Gummer is. You know what? Let's just start with with Tremors. I know All usually right. we start with the biggest film of the week, and in our estimation, probably... that's Tremors Shrieker's Island. Yeah, I mean, there's a new Borat sequel. Okay, fine. Uh, we're going to talk about Tremor 7. Because uh, we want to. It's our podcast. <laughs> we get to decide what a priority oh. is. Yeah, uh... Tremors, if you haven't seen the 1990 original directed by Ron Underwood, it is uh, now it, it hasn't even been re- relitigated. It just was slowly discovered over the years and it is now considered pretty much a classic. Yeah, uh, it stars uh, Kevin Bacon and um, Fred, said, Fred Ward. I almost said Burt Ward. <laughs> Not Burt Ward. That would have been an interesting film, too, though. Yeah, uh, uh, Fred Ward and Kevin Bacon, they mm-hmm. play a local handyman at a very, 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 very small desert town called Perfection. Uh, They're in the middle of nowhere, a population of like 12. Mm. And it's just a series of bunkers, really, and a roadside store. Yeah. And that's kind of it. Yep. People are just trying to get away from civilization, basically. Mm. And uh, they find out that their little desert town is the surprise hub for a new outbreak of giant Precambrian life forms that are big, giant, burrowing, man-eating Slug monsters. Yeah, these these subterranean worm monsters can dig through the dirt like a fish through water, and 
they have no eyes, but they sense where you are by sensing the vibrations on the ground. So mm-hmm. if you're on the ground, you got to stay still. It's a lot like the sandworms from Doom. Yeah, it's actually. it's yeah. it's the floor is lava. The movie, but it really really works. Uh, it's very well written. It's yeah. got this great Amblin Entertainment vibe, where just the mm. those times when like genre films were big ensemble, wonderful character actor pieces. Everyone mm. got great dialogue. Everyone got uh, fun set pieces. The first Tremors, mm. even if you're not a huge fan of the sequels, like we are. Just works. It's a really good film. It's a really good film, and the cast uh, surprisingly engaging. It has mm-hmm. uh, the girl went on to go in Jurassic Park. Uh, the the actress. Oh, the very her, young girl. The yeah. very young girl. Uh, the the girl's mom was played by the lady from across the hall in Eraserhead. I never put that together. <laughs> yeah, it, it took me a long time wow. too. Wow, I'm a big cool. fan of Eraserhead. Eraserhead is so weird. It's like you can't think of those people in other movies. It's like its own yeah. little pocket universe. Yeah. N- never mind that uh the guy in the era- like in the Eraserhead shop in Eraserhead mm-hmm. is Ted's dad in Bill and Ted Face the Music. Oh, I totally forgot about yeah, that. Also the, in the other Bill and Ted's it was the same guy. So, yeah, and the, the um sa- same actor in all three of those movies. Fair enough. Uh but uh the big standout characters, like the breakout characters, mm-hmm. as much as we liked Fred Ward and Kevin Bacon, they're great in, the, in that movie. And they're, they're the leads. Yeah. They're the leads, but the, you know you know how it often is with a genre film. They're the leads, but the breakout characters, someone off to the side. Mm-hmm. And the big breakout characters were uh, played by uh, Michael Gross from Family Ties. Family Ties, That was yeah. Family Ties. I get some of the 80 seconds yeah, mixed yeah. up. The dad from Family Ties. Uh, as a conspiracy theory doomsday prepper uh, gun Survi- He's a survivor. He calls himself a survivalist. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he's got an underground bunker that's filled with weaponry, and he is just waiting. It's a, it's mm. like 1990, so he's waiting for like Red Dawn to happen, and like for the communists to invade America, mm. so he can save the country along with his wife Reba McIntyre. <laughs> she's only in the first one, but yeah, yeah, Re- she's Reba really McIntyre has this little tiny. She has like four lines, but she's in that. She's first in a little movie. bit more than that, but she's really great in it. Mm. And then uh, the movie did okay. It did much better on home video, mm. so they ended up greenlighting a few years later. Tremors 2, Aftershocks. Good title. It clearly came in the heels of Jurassic Park, though, because they uh, they changed the life cycle of the monsters. Mm. Uh, the These big burrowing worms, I guess, uh, wasn't enough creativity for the filmmakers, but more than anything, I think they just wanted raptors. So they, they uh, <laughs> changed the life cycle of the, the monsters called Graboids. They're not called Tremors. Nope. Uh, and... These giant worms split open, and these three raptor-sized blind monsters walk out on two legs. And they don't burrow. They just walk around. They walk around, and they eat things, and then they reproduce, and that's kind of all they do. They see an infrared, is what they do. So you can disguise yourself... Uh, by hiding your by a warm signature. thing. Yeah. Uh, Fred Ward is re-enlisted to uh, fight off a new Graboid infestation in Mexico, and he enlists Bert Gummer, whose wife has recently left him, uh, to help him destroy all the Graboids. And then it turns out the Graboids evolve, and they weren't ready for this evolution, and all of Bert's guns are actually way more useless than he thought they were. And it's actually really fun. It's mm. it's kind of lo-fi, but the writing is pretty good. And uh, once Michael Gross comes in, like the second half of the movie, it just pops. It's so good. Yeah, man. Uh, third one, Fred Ward is out, and it's just Bert, the Burt Gummer show. And it will be from here on out. He yeah. became the lead of this series and of the TV show, uh, which I'm grateful for. Uh, because even though Burt Gummer is this sort of hard-edged, gun-nut survivalist, you'd think he'd be really sort of edgy and uh 
really antisocial and really kind of this this mean asshole because he's played by Michael Gross, who is such a genial, kind man. Mm-hmm. That kindness shows through, and Burt Gummer is actually an incredibly charming character. Yeah. He's this weird, death-obsessed survivalist who you want to hang out with. Here's the thing with that with, that's important with Burt mm. Gummer. Even though he's, you know, he's hoarding we- uh, weapons mm. and ammunition, he thinks the apocalypse is coming, all of these things, mm. which often are big red flags yeah. about why you don't want to hang out with somebody. With Burt, he's not in it because deep down he's hateful. Mm. That's yeah, the thing yeah. that's fascinating. It's not because he's hating, he hates anybody. He's doing it because he wants to protect everybody. Mm. And hate doesn't enter into it. He never really talks about anyone he hates except for like government bureaucracy. Mm. That's it. He's actually a pretty decent human being. Yeah. Um, back to Perfection is the third one, if memory serves. And uh, that one, they go back to their hometown. Some of the cast members from the original do come back, but not Fred Ward and Kevin Bacon, so most people didn't notice. Uh, and in this one, uh, the, the Graboids are back. Uh, someone is actually trying to buy up all the land and like boot everyone out of their homes, but the Graboids are back. They turn into uh, the secondary evolution of the Graboid, the Shrieker, because they yell real loud, like echolocation. Uh, and uh, then it turns out that the Shriekers are only the second evolution, and then there's a third <laughs> in the Graboid life cycle. Yeah. And this one, are there, it is the very unfortunately dubbed, and bless them, they committed to this. They could have changed it at any they time. G- they gave it a gross nickname, not really assuming that they'd have to keep on using this nickname. They didn't necessarily think there were going to be four more films, mm-hmm. but this is where we get the third evolution of Tremors' ass blasters. Uh, they they have little like pockets of napalm in their butts. Yeah, and they can like have little explosions that propel them in the air out of their butts. And then they have like glider wings. and yeah, they can so they sort can, of fly towards you and like, eat you. Float back down to the ground. They don't actually fly like bats. They just glide. Um, kind of stupid, really. But uh, by God, they did it, and now we're and, stuck with it. And at the end, I'll of, say, say yeah. this for for Michael Gross. Every, he seems like embarrassed. The character seems a little embarrassed to use ass blasters, but because he knows it's a regular thing. Michael Gross sells it with the utmost dignity. He's able to say these ridiculous lines with complete plausibility, Uh, which is hard to do for an actor. I I admire an actor who can say ridiculous things with a straight face. uh, The third film set the stage for the original Tremors, the series, which aired in the Sci-Fi Network, and we did a whole Cancel Too Soon episode about that. So we're just going to burn through the basic concept real fast. Uh, Basically, at the end of Tremors 3, it turns out that there is one Graboid that is basically sterile, like it cannot reproduce Shriekers. Mm. So it's just stuck in its giant graboid state. And so it's an endangered species, so they let it live so they all can stay on their homes and not have it bought up by real estate agents because this is now protected land. Problem is, they still have to live on it, and so they're living with this graboid. So yeah, Burt Gummer is now the graboid's sole protector. Yeah. Hates the government, doesn't like any uh, bureaucrats coming Mm. in and buying up the land, and also... He is constantly being beset by obnoxious tourists who are coming by to see the Graboid. Yeah. Because it's this little tourist town where people stop to get treats. Yeah. Uh, Dean Norris, uh, who would go on to be in Breaking Bad, uh, plays the uh, government agent who is responsible for making sure that Burt Gummer doesn't break any of the Graboid rules. Mm -hmm. And occasionally they send Burt Gummer and random people from the cast out to to stop other Graboid infestations. It's a hit or miss show, but if you like Burt Gummer, it's pretty good. Um, Burt Gummer's not in the last few episodes, which was a mistake. Huge those, mistake. Yeah. Those are not. Those are barely watchable episodes. He, he kept that whole series afloat. Um, the fourth Tremors movie 
is a bit of a departure, but it works because it's funny. <laughs> the fourth Tremors is a prequel that takes place in, in the, the old, cowboy in days. In the old west, yeah. <laughs> where Burt Gummer's ancestor, a kind of a dweeby, tweedy bookworm who's never touched a gun in his life, mm. comes to town in perfection and uh, finds out that not only is perfection like beset by bad guys or whatever, but also the first Graboid outbreak. Mm. So he ends up teaming up with, I think it's Billy Drago, isn't it? I think it is Billy Drago. Billy Let me look Dra- that up. I think, I think it might Drago. be Billy Drago. Billy Drago, there's a, he teams up with an Old West cowhand and uh, with a cowboy, you know, bounty hunter, uh, to fight these Graboids. And in the process, becomes a gun nut and sets in, in motion the whole Gummer legacy. Mm. It's cheap, but it's actually pretty funny and it's pretty good. And again, it's it's Michael Gross who's really carrying it. Yeah, oh, who gets absolutely. to play a completely different character this time around, but mm. still really appealing. Well, I bet that was must have been mm. very very satisfying for him to get to mix yeah. it up a little bit. Um, uh, it wasn't until 2015, yeah, which was you know, 11 years after Tremors Four that they made Tremors Five. Tremors Five Bloodlines, probably the worst in the series. Oh, I, I don't think uh, so. I think it's a non after that. But uh, mm. Bloodlines is the one. I think it takes place in South Africa. Yeah, it's, uh, it's this. There's a. As far as they knew, Graboids only existed in America. Now they're appearing on another continent, so he has to travel there with uh, an extreme hunting reality show crew. That's the new angle. Except this crew is just one guy, and it's Jamie Kennedy from Scream. Mm. Uh, Jamie Kennedy's actually pretty good. Like He doesn't like... You would think that Jamie Kennedy, considering his career never quite took off, he was in Son of the Mask, that maybe he would be sort of like the annoying comic relief guy. He's on the wavelength. Yeah. He's doing his job. He had a successful TV career. He had that, yeah. that prank show. He did okay. Like, yeah. I'm not... No disrespect. It's just like, you know, he doesn't... People don't talk about him when they talk about this series. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, he, I think he brings, you know, what this, he's asked to bring to the series. He's a good counterpoint to Burt Gummer. Um, and yeah, and they fight a bunch of slightly different Graboids because they're in a different part of the world. It's a little forgettable. And the only really noteworthy thing about it is we find out that Jamie Kennedy is actually Burt Gummer's son. Yeah. Uh, the next one is the one that I would argue is the worst. It's uh, Tremors, yeah. Cold Day in Hell. And uh, Tremors, clearly there's, I mean, all of these films were shot on a budget. Only oh, the yeah. first one had studio money. The rest were all really low budget affairs. Uh, they had passable special effects, some yeah. practical, um, some, better some than CGI. Others. Yeah. Uh, this one, though, is clearly like bottom of the barrel kind of budgeting, yeah. where they the idea was we're going to go to a part of the world where the Graboids burrow through snow. That's the whole premise. It's supposed we see to it be the beginning. frozen Graboids. OK, maybe they're stronger so they can like punch through ice or something. Yeah. Either the way, the change was, in locale would be interesting. Exactly. The problem was clearly the place they intended to go wasn't snowing when they scheduled the film. So you <laughs> kind of just have to pretend a little bit that there's snow everywhere. They, they tried to brush it aside like, ah, global warming. Am I right? Yeah, and you know what? Like they, yeah, you are right. They, but they wrote a couple <laughs> wrote a couple lines of dialogue to cover for this bad thing. But it completely neutralizes the entire point of the movie because other than that, it's kind of just another Tremors, it's except a, there's uh, one weird thing where we find out that Michael Gross, who at some point had, I think in the third one, had been swallowed by a Graboid and fought his way out, mm. became, like, infected with a Graboid parasite. Right. And they had to, like, cure him mm. before he could save the day. That added kind of an interesting wrinkle. That wasn't too bad. But overall, just a big old missed opportunity. It's watchable. It's not well, like a I, bad, bad, bad movie. It's just I think it's easily the worst of the series. I, I think the what the strength one of the strengths of the Tremor series is it has an interesting monster. It has Burt Gummer at its center, who's a great character. But also every single one of the films, I think with the exception of the fifth, 
is careful to assemble a really interesting ensemble of supporting characters. True, and I think there, even Cold Day and Hell does do that. You're yeah, right. and Cold Day and Hell has yeah some interesting characters. They all converse. Everything's very casual. The tone is very light in these movies, even though they're about killer monsters. Uh, it, it never gets like tragic or super violent, except in a comedic sort of way. Like yeah. when they blow up a graboid and everybody gets covered with graboid meat. Yeah. Like that's gory, but it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's like wiping their glasses. Ah, and, and graboid meat is like, it's like the color of a Slurpee. Like it's this bright orange yeah. color. It's like they exploded a lava lamp on everybody. Yeah. 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 Uh, so I, I appreciate that in a way to keep the tone light, they have a lot of uh, interesting supporting characters. And that holds true in Tremor 7. Yeah. Uh, Tremor 7, Shrieker Island, it's called. Yeah. The premise of Tremor 7 uh, is that there is now an island, a tropical island. I think it's in, it's like off of uh, Papua New Guinea. Uh, yes, it is. And uh, a rich billionaire played by Richard Brake, really cool character actor. I always like um, him. He was great in that movie 31. He was excellent. He was uh, one of the only reasons I was tempted to give 31 a good review. That movie stinks, by the way. It's it's <laughs> it's pretty gross. It's yeah. pretty like I think the first few scenes of the people just sort of having conversations are interesting. Yeah. Richard Brake is a great monster, essentially. Yeah. He's Richard, a great villain character. In that movie, Richard Brake is mm. one of the better cinematic jokers. He's just not playing the joker. Yeah, he's yeah, really, really he'd good. He'd be man. a great Joker. Which is funny because in the uh, t- in Christopher Nolan's Batman movies, he played Joe Chill, the guy who killed Batman's parents. Oh, that, that was him. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's got a, he's had this long career doing bit parts and big things and big mm. parts and little things. Yeah, uh, and I'm a big fan. I think he's a good actor. Um, so he plays a billionaire who has put together a hunting reserve on a tropical island for rich a holes, and on this tropical island, he has bred and placed. For graboids, not really thinking out the whole graboid mm-hmm. life cycle thing. But he knows he can make a heck of a, a lot of money selling hunting trips to, uh, in his words, uh, Silicon Valley billionaires. Yeah. Like tech giants who just want to shoot a monster. Uh, on, on another island very close by, like literally, like you could swim it, uh, there is a uh, scientific team uh, led by uh, to, someone who turns out to have been uh, the mother of Jamie Kennedy's char- character, like mm. Burt Gummer's like ex-girlfriend slash wife. They, I don't think they ever specifically say if they got no, married. Like, um, I, I had assumed that Jamie Kennedy was Reba McIntyre's son when they first mentioned it, but it's mm, not Reba McIntyre's no, son. No, I think, and I think the timing doesn't work out mm. either. Um but uh, and she so she's running this place, and uh, the comic relief character we have because Jamie Kennedy couldn't be bothered this time uh, is uh, John Hader from uh, Napoleon Dynamite, mm. who's fine. He, he's fine, and his his arc is uh, that he's leading the team, but he's sort of a scaredy cat, and he doesn't yeah. know how to lead a team. Yeah, and he has, has to start making decisions by the end of the movie. So uh, when they find out that there are graboids nearby and they're actually affecting the local wildlife, they introduce this invasive, really mm-hmm. chaotic species. Uh, they're like, okay, someone's got to have to kill all these graboids in order to save like all the elephants and all the other creatures that are native to the area. Um, and at first, they were just like, oh, well, we should uh, we should get uh, Jamie Kennedy's character because he took over the business after Bergummer retired. Jamie Kennedy's character is currently in a prison in Mexico for for uh, smuggling in mushrooms. Psychedelic mushrooms. mushrooms, yeah. Yeah, which um, just goes to show you like how much they appreciated Jamie Kennedy not coming back for the last <laughs> installment. Like That's one of those ones that was just like, yeah, he died horribly off screen. Um, but uh, Burt Gummer, it turns out, is actually hiding from the world. He's officially given up on the world. He's living in a shack on a beach. Which, fortunately, is like a half-day's boat ride away from where they happen to be right now. Just go with it. It's a low-budget Tremor <laughs> it's, sequel. It's convenient. 
Uh, and uh, and he's gone full castaway, giant beard, eating grubs, and uh, he's convinced to come back. And he mm. comes back, and okay. they have to kill all these graboids, but he doesn't have any of his weapons with them, so they end up using whatever they can find from like an old mm. World War II shelter that's full of machetes and dynamite that's going to blow up if you breathe on it wrong. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. I, um, one of the reasons I like uh, Alien more than Aliens mm. is that... Uh, when the creature attacks an alien, they're not soldiers or fighters. They don't have weapons. Yeah. They have a flamethrower, but they didn't use that for like combat purposes. No, they had, had to like, jury rig you know, that out of like an, out of like an arc welder. Like, yeah. 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 I, so I, I appreciate because people need to be a little bit more innovative to combat yeah. this menace. If you just go in with a gun, you just shoot it. That's not interesting. Right. So, so uh, I, I appreciate that they have to be a little more innovative. And there are uh, two wonderful, utter badasses on the cast as well. <laughs> Uh, the hunting party, led by Richard Brake, has, uh, like, Huntress with a bow and arrow. Mm-hmm. Clearly and, clearly uh, modeled, like, costume-wise after um, sort of uh, like Tomb Raider. Yeah, yeah, she looks a lot uh, like Tomb she's Raider. She's played by Cassie Clare, mm. uh, who is a really, like, strong presence in this kind of a film. Yeah, and she she has a lot yeah. of character. She has a lot of confidence. She seems really capable. Yeah, and uh, we also have f- the character of Freddie, played by an actress named Jackie Cruz, who uh, is the one who's essentially like she's the one who comes up with a lot of really great ideas. She has a lot of technical know how, especially when monsters start attacking. Yeah. And she's also the one who gives everybody their pep talks and lets them know their inner strength. So she's kind of the heart of this movie as well. It's interesting because visually, like the way that they sh- photograph. Uh, uh, her is very cheesecakey. Like yeah. there's a lot of slow mo shots of her running, and that's frankly something the rest of the Tremors movies didn't really do. But the writing is actually better for her character than that. Yeah, she actually yeah. gets to be witty and have a strong personality. And, and, and I don't think the the film exploits her. In fact, no, they give her a really they're, clearly, good they're clearly more than happy to film her that's, yeah, looking yeah, nice in a way that they aren't with other characters. Yeah, and, but and like it's yeah. There's, there's, yeah, like a, a slight bite of cheesecake, which was just unnecessary. Little, just a little. Uh, but uh, again, yeah, I love those characters. I love that John Heater has like an arc. There's a coward who has to become brave. And mm-hmm. Burt Gummer is the one here to lead them all. But yeah. what I love about Burt Gummer is they call him in to help them out, to lead the team. But he rarely assumes a leadership role. He never says, I'm the one in charge. Yeah. He just says, what do we have at our disposal? And he, like someone will make a plan. He says, okay, we have a plan. And that's what they'll do. And he's it's done like this he's so never, many times. He never dominates over this group. He's done this so many times. He knows he can't do it by himself, mm. and that's that's it, that's good. The only thing that the only thing that really bugs me about this movie, and it's definitely not the worst Tremors movie. That's if not it's six, it's five. It's one of those mm. two, and even those aren't bad. Those are perfectly watchable straight to video monster movies. Yeah. Um. The only thing that keeps this one back is that once you get Burt Gummer on the island, once the Graboids have turned into Shriekers and they're running around killing mm-hmm. everybody, they're kind of just doing a low-budget remake of Predator. They're doing a low-budget remake of Predator. I, I appreciate seeing different characters in different scenarios, thinking of different ways to get out of it, but there's a, the movie's like, it only needs to be 80 minutes, and it's about 105. There's a scene where they go into caves, 
Mm-hmm. And they're just sort of stalking around a cave. I'm like, okay, come on, let's let's just this is yeah. totally they, unnecessary. They stop so John Hader can cover himself with yeah. mud so the Shriekers can't see him. And mm. Burt Gummer, rather than saying you're probably covering yourself with bat guano and mm. like getting all kinds of new forms of hepatitis or something mm. awful, and maybe you shouldn't be doing that. Burt Gummer's like, okay, I guess I'll do that too. Mm. That's like a that's like two minutes of real estate wasted. Yeah, just yeah. wasted on nothing. <laughs> it's it feels padded, which is unfortunate because it's such an efficient premise storyline. Um, but I will say this, and I don't want to go into detail, which is unfortunate because mm. I wish we could talk about this at, at length. It ends in such a way that it feels like the franchise is over, that if they're going to continue it, they'll probably reboot it, or maybe they'll go back to that series idea or something. Maybe that was the idea. Like maybe. we can make this movie, but you have to get out of the way of the series. Yeah. So they, yeah, they, they, again, without revealing any details, they ended it. They kind of ended the series. Pretty definitively. And on one hand, I'm going, ah, oh, I liked the Tremors movies. Yeah. <laughs> and on the other hand, I must admit, it goes out on a pretty decent, actually pretty respectful note. And yeah. I, I, it doesn't end up like... It's not some cheap or heavy or, or heady, yeah, yeah, it doesn't oversell itself, but it earns a moment to just say, hey, weren't these Tremors movies kind of cool? We liked making them too. These were Thank light, you very much. Yeah, these were light and fun. Thanks yeah. for coming with us. Yeah. So, so um, you, William, and you, Whitney, who are the only two people who've... <laughs> Watched all okay, seven of these that is things. Not, that cannot be true. They wouldn't keep making these. They don't keep making Scorpion King straight-to-video movies. They gave up after five. Like, Tremors, <laughs> Tremors they kept going for seven fuck. This thing has been going. This is the 30th anniversary of Tremors. That's right. Very few horror franchises keep going in their original franchise for 30 years. Very few. Without, Often they're rebooted you know, there's, or... There's no, there's no reboot. There was a TV series, but it was in line with yeah. the films. I heard uh, tale that the Kevin Bacon like TV series might have been done in such a way that they could say the other ones are canon, even though they're not telling the same story. Yeah. I don't know how true that was. We won't know until we see it. But uh, hopefully we will someday. But um, this is a consistent series, and it was consistently pretty good. Like It started really strong, then it got a little bit worse... And then it kind of plateaued a little bit worse than that, which is still like a two and a half to three star (laughs) cheesy monster movie, which is pretty good. I've seen so many worse cheesy monster movies where they they try to make the tone really serious or even worse, they try to make it kind of slapstick. Uh, So many of those sci-fi channel original monster monster movies are... There's, they're bad because A, the special effects are bad. B, oh, yeah. they take the premise way too seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, C, they all have Eric Roberts. and uh, <laughs> That's not inherently That's not inherently a bad thing. Eric Roberts is fine. Just Eric to, Roberts was in Cecil B. Demented. How bad could he be? Just uh, <laughs> him appearing in a movie is kind of a warning sign in some cases. <laughs> if, you, if he's appearing in a movie that didn't end up in theaters, it's a warning sign. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing. But there, I will say this. There are some he good was, sci-fi channel original movies. There are a few good Abominable ones. Abominable was good. Occasion, like Arachnid the, was the, good. The, the try to sell this really ridiculous premise as if it's really something serious, but they'll do it on these cardboard sets so you can't really believe it. And then they'll try to insert these really kind of tasteless jokes. Yeah. Uh, it's like, I, I'm an asshole. I want to swim with the mega shark. Ooh, and I'm the ditzy wife. Can I want to swim too? Honey, let's beat up this guy and go swimming. And then we just are supposed to take this dark glee and watching those people that we just met getting instantly torn apart. Mm-hmm. They're kind of condescending and, to the audience. They're like, you like this? Yeah. No, stop doing that. Like, and I, under- look, I understand why we're here. All right. <laughs> I'm not going to pretend I'm here for the story. I'm here for the mayhem, but there's a, there's a way to do mayhem right. And a way to do it in a way that's kind of gross. And, and Tremors I feel consistently like, did the I, mayhem, right? Uh, they, they did tasteful mayhem. Yeah. And that's, that's difficult to do. It is. 
I've seen so many bad versions of this. It must be difficult to do. Otherwise, everyone would do it. Here's here's my hope, because I know that physical media is on its way out. Mm. It is. Let's just be, let's just be it's fair to It's kind of out, actually. It's, it, it's just specialty houses now. It's specialty kind of, houses yeah. and major releases, and there are fewer of those than ever this mm. year, so it really feels like they're dying out. There are still specialty houses putting stuff out. Please, someone, Shout Factory, Arrow Video, El Vinegar Syndrome, I don't care. Somebody mm. put out... One good Tremors box set. Just oh. one. Before physical media dies, I want one good. You can put two on a disc after the first one. I don't give a shit. That's fine. There's, the, there's short movies. Would the TV show be in there, too? I think the TV show should be in there. Right. And if you can't get the TV show, try to get the Kevin Bacon pilot, because that'll drive up sales. That's no true. No one ever saw that. That's so, true. boom. That's what you do. You get at least Tremors 1 through 7 and the Kevin Bacon pilot. And if you can throw in the, the TV series, all the better. But please, someone. And I, I will say this right now. Whitney and I will do a commentary track for all seven of them. I, I, I will pledge that. Yeah. I stand by that. And Absolutely. We'll, and, and Whitney will do it for free. <laughs> Modest sum. No, I'll, I'll, give my, I'll give half of mine to Whitney. Thank you. <laughs> I actually would do that for free. Yeah, I would totally I'm, do that for free. Yeah, no, I probably yeah, would too. Just for yeah. posterity. Mm. Anyway, we love the Tremors movies. The new one is pretty good. Not the best in the series by any stretch, but if you I like them I, too, I think you'll enjoy it. I think uh, I like it better than five and six. Yeah, I think yeah. it's fair. And all, right. and all three, uh, five, six, and seven were all made by the same director, and I think mm. he really found his footing with this seventh one. Yeah. It's a pity that they kind of closed the book on Tremors. We'll see if they continue onward. Yeah, there's always another way to do it, yeah. but you know, we'll we'll see where it goes. It's, it's a franchise. It has a cachet. They'll find something to do with it eventually, but mm. this feels like the end of the original series mm. for now. Who knows? Do we have to talk about any other movies? That was the only one that no. no. Unfortunately, like no, Robert, we, we do. Robert Zemeckis made a movie. All Sophia right, Coppola made a movie. <sighs> Those hacks. <laughs> okay, let's talk about let's talk about the one that every I think uh, most people are talking about uh, this week, and that is Borat. Subsequent movie film, something, 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 In, including, something. including the president. He was talking about it, right? Um, it's being sold as Borat subsequent movie film, but it has like eight titles throughout because they have yeah. to keep on changing it. As they change, as the premise of the movie changes mm. slightly, the incredibly long title of the film mm. adjusts accordingly, which is a which is a running gag throughout the movie. The uh, the full official title is uh, Borat subsequent movie film colon delivery of prodigious bribe to American regime for make benefit once glorious nation of Kazakhstan. Yeah. Um, again. This has nothing to do with Kazakhstan. <laughs> this is a if you know, fictional. If you know anything about Kazakhstan, yeah. If you know anything <laughs> about Kazakhstan, you know it's nothing like it is in this movie. Uh, the the uh, pigeon Kazakh language is actually just Hebrew. <laughs> um, oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, That's like I, I think it's like a lot of it's like the, kind of a fakey Hebrew, from what yeah. I understand. But I don't speak Hebrew, so I could be mistaken on that. Uh, but the last Borat film was in 2006, so it's been 14 years since we've seen this character. It really made a big time. splash when it came out in 2006. It was a giant blockbuster, mm. and it was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Screenplay, which, which is, is weird, because it was mostly ad-libbed. Uh, yeah, some of it was ad-libbed, some of it was, ad-libbed, some of it was just straight-up documentary footage. Yeah. Uh, and the idea was this character, Borat, was a journalist from Kazakhstan, a fake version of Kazakhstan, which is... In the imagining of the film, a completely backward place where the government is falling apart. Everybody is incredibly anti-Semitic. Yeah. Uh, everybody is really racist. They just, and they have no access to, like, medicine or education. It it's, is it is the ultimate, like, 
quote unquote third world country mm-hmm. that like your parents told you about in the 1980s when you wouldn't eat your broccoli. Yeah, there are kids starving in Kazakhstan. That kind of thing. Like that's mm-hmm. the. It's actually it's actually really offensive. Uh, it, it, but, it, and and in fact, Kazakhstan not surprisingly, was Kazakhstan was pissed. Yeah. Um, but uh, the idea is in the original Borat came to America to make this film the just sort of this sort of um, um, this travel log basically it, it was a travel log but it was also uh, like a critical document about uh, right wing America at the time this was during the Bush junior administration yeah and uh, he was really going into uh, prod at the extreme right wing like ultra patriotism that was on display in America during. George W. Bush's administration. Yeah. Uh, So he specifically went to a lot of deep red states uh, trying to find, uh, some people called them easy targets, but, you know, Americans to kind of goad them into saying horrible things. Yeah. And then sometimes he didn't have to goad them. No, he usually didn't have to goad them very, very hard. Um, The original Borat is a film that I, I thought was funny when I first saw it. And I thought it wasn't funny the second time I saw it mm. because it loses a lot of its shock value. It loses a lot of its yeah. sting. I, I appreciate the idea uh, and the effort. I think sometimes it's just not funny. Sometimes it is kind of funny. But once you've gone, oh, my God, I can't believe they said that. Or, oh, my God, mm. I can't believe he ran naked through a thing. Um, it just kind of lost a lot of its power. And frankly, well, like- I find it. Yeah, just just kind of okay now. I'm not a huge I think fan. I think the documentary stuff is fascinating, just yeah. as a as a, a time capsule of mm-hmm. what America was at the time. That's fair. Um, I haven't revisited it recently. So but yeah, the uh, the oh look, these there's two there's a naked fat man on screen. How funny! Or we're gonna see Sasha Baron Cohen's penis. Look, seen it. Like, <laughs> he, he whips it out in every movie. I don't care anymore. Um, yeah, yeah. A, lo- a lot of that sort of shock and and poop and pee humor just didn't really doesn't last and I didn't think that stuff was very funny and it, I, and it dates horribly I actually suspect a lot of people haven't revisited it recently mm. I remember I was uh, like earlier this week someone was talking about they'd seen it I hadn't seen it yet mm. um, and um, they were talking about this new Borat and then someone posted on their thing and they said um, uh, this new one isn't political is it and I'm like <laughs> you know the original one was like super political political like incredibly political yeah. and uh, I, I feel like since 2006, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen didn't necessarily have enough uh, cultural material in America to work with to make another Borat film. Not not right away. Not right away. Yeah, he kind of he, he used up a lot yeah. of it right at once. Yeah. But it's but, but it's uh, but <laughs> times are weird time, now. The times have changed. 2020 is a dumpster fire, and this is kind of a great time for another Borat film. It's pretty pretty spot on. So the uh, the premise of this one is that. Uh, Borat, the original film, was a huge success and made everybody happy except Kazakhstan, who was really pissed at Borat for making them into this like punchline for the planet Earth. Mm. Uh, so he has been in prison this whole time. Mm. Uh, and uh, times have changed. And now all of a sudden we have a new president in America who really likes fascist dictators and is like really cozying up with all of them. <laughs> and the fascist dictator in the movie of Kazakhstan is mad because Trump hasn't come a Colin. And so his whole thing is he's going to send Borat to America with a with, gift, with yeah. a gift. And he's going to give the gift to Mike, to, uh, to, to Donald Trump or Mike Pence. And the whole thing is this will ingratiate Kazakhstan to America. This, it doesn't this, go well. This fascistic dictatorship. <laughs> yeah, I I love that. that there's, it's a smart there, premise. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a clever it's way a to get into premise. it. 
And of course, as all travelogues go, uh, everything starts going wrong pretty quickly. Yeah, turns out Borat has a daughter he didn't know he had, mm. played by, is it Maria? Bakalova. Maria Bakalova. Mm. Uh, and uh, he lives in an incredibly like institutionalized sexist country where women are are literally kept in cages. Yeah, and and they 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 try to make that funny. It's mm. dark, obviously, well, and, but and they they know what they're doing. And but because the uh, the information they get from America is filtered through the uh, imaginary Kazakh propaganda machine, mm-hmm. it's like animated specials about Donald Trump and Melania and this like fairy tale yeah. romance they had. And how w- Melania has it so well because she's kept in a golden cage. <laughs> so uh the daughter Marina Bakalova has dreams Maria. Uh, part, uh Maria Bakalova yeah. has dreams of going to Amer- the character has dreams of going to America and uh living like Melania. That's her big dream mm-hmm. is to marry a rich man. <laughs> because this is all she's been taught. Yeah. Uh so he uh, so Borat ends up she ends up like stowing away. Borat was supposed to give Mike Pence a gift of their biggest movie star, a monkey. A chimpanzee. Uh and I'm sorry, chimpanzee. Mm-hmm. And the uh, problem is uh, Borat's daughter stowed away with the chimpanzee, and in order to survive the trip in a crate, she ate the chimpanzee. Claiming, uh, claiming the chimp ate itself. <laughs> which Borat believes for a bit. Uh, but uh, now they don't have anything to give Mike Pence, and so the government says, okay, give Mike Pence your daughter. And Borat is just like, that's oh. reasonable, and surely it's better than anything she'd get in Kazakhstan. Mm. Uh, and uh, over the course of the film, as they're trying to meet Mike Pence and give her away to different, you know, Republican mm. officials when the Mike Pence thing doesn't work out, they actually and, yeah. form a they actually form like a closer bond together, and they realize that they've been fed nonstop propaganda, and that actually and they actually grow closer and they grow a bit as characters, mm. which is. You know, you would think might seem a little preachy coming in a broad comedy like that, but it happens surprisingly organically. And one of the well, things I, I like best about this film uh-huh. is that more so than the original Borat, even though a lot of it is still them going into like random stores or whatever and just chatting people up and being weird, uh, it actually seems to fall together as like a sculpted narrative a little stronger. It feels it, yeah. like there's a proper beginning, middle, and end, and I think it's there, pretty smart. I think there's more scripted bits. Uh, there's a lot of... Because Borat actually has, like, another person to talk to. Yeah. Like, he had, uh, like, his his buddy in the original, but they didn't converse a lot. And they didn't have, like, like a meaningful relationship. Exactly. Yeah, this so, is, like, a... So yeah, there's there's, like, a human relationship at the center of this. Um, Maria Bakalova, can we put her on the... Oscar's ballot. She's great in this. Movie. She's she is for someone uh, who is like making like their big debut in front of everybody. Mm-hmm. Like I, she's I think she's been in other things, but nothing like this. Um, boy, is this a wow? She's going to be a big fucking deal. Yeah, she's very yeah, she, funny. She's, she's very ho- game. Hilarious in yeah. this. Uh, she and it, and it's not just like it's plenty of shock humor because that's you know mm. Borat's metier. But yeah. uh, it's, some of it's be, funnier. Beyond than that, others. some of it is very funny, uh, and a lot of it is also based on she has just as much composure doing the pranks that Sasha Baron Cohen does, which is hard to do. Uh, yeah, say what you about Sasha Baron Cohen. He's he's keep a straight face. He's it's, he's able to keep the gag going. You can yeah. say that that's an obnoxious the talent to have, but it you know serves well, these and, movies very well. And you think about and, it, like a lot of the things that he's doing are mm-hmm. like uh, I'm going to go into this store and I'm going to say horrible things and ask him to write something really offensive on a mm-hmm. cake, and I'm like. Dude, it's a capitalistic country. The customer is considered always right. You just yeah. got to put up with assholes sometimes. Yeah, and I'm not saying I approve of everything everyone does in this film, but I also know that sometimes just get them out the fucking door. Yeah, well, and like I just feel like sometimes it's but, a cheap shot. Well, and, and some and sometimes 
with only the slightest bit of goading, somebody says something incredibly horrible. That's true as well. Like a real person out of their heart says something really horrible. Oh my God. When they go, when they go to the plastic surgery clinic. Oh God. Because he wants plastic surgeon, man. Because they're going to be, he says, this is my 15 year old daughter. And I would like to her to look like the ultimate, you know, sex appeal icon. Mm. The plastic surgeon, the things that guy says about this, this woman that he, he thinks is a 15 year old girl. Holy shit. Like they didn't they didn't script that. Part. No, and they did and, not have to try very fucking yeah. hard either. Like this isn't just like get him out of the Halloween costume store. He said some stupid things. I'll just yeah. I'll just nod, smile and nod and get him out of here. So then there's the cake thing, which I yeah. totally think that was that that was bullshit. No one should yeah. have written that on a cake. Uh, but like the, the once they get into the plastic surgery clinic, I'm just like, okay, that yeah. guy's a fucking wow. <laughs> Holy and, shit. Uh, some of the pranks are, you know, they get a bad reaction, but they were designed to. It's he's going to a Republican convention in a Klansman outfit. That one's really yeah. horrible. Well, he comes in uh, saying he's Stephen Miller and he's yeah. running late, which yeah. admittedly got a chuckle out of me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then he put on, and I think this, I kind of recall this. There was a, a Republican super PAC speech of some kind where Mike Pence was appearing. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sasha Baron Cohen had some really elaborate Donald Trump makeup on. Mm-hmm. And he slung a woman over his shoulder and said, hey, I'm here to give you a woman. And he just starts yelling yeah. things about you know how horrible Republicans are. And, they're, and he's booed out of the room, as he would be. Yeah. People wouldn't say, yeah, good point in this room full of Republicans that he's no, yelling he, at. He knows, uh, he knows that's not going to go well. Uh, it's not really a gotcha moment. Like, no, we're not going to be fine with that. There's two gotcha moments that are kind of brilliant in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, one you've heard about because it's been on the news. Um mm-hmm. And and uh, I'll, and I'll just say it right away. Rudy Giuliani is doing exactly what it looks like he's doing. There's no two ways about that. Uh, they interview Rudy Giuliani. They take him into another room. The young reporter helps him take off his mic. He does something that is very illegal on camera. How, why he's not in jail? That's, I don't know. That, that's what it looks like. That's man. what it looks like. I man. mean, they're yeah, they're pretty quick, but like, yeah, that's that's and and and, what, the, what and, and the music helps there. sell the 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 mood a lot. Mm. I'll give you that. Like, mm. there's there's you know there's filmmaking going on here, but boy, does it not look good. Mm. Um, uh, the other moment is uh, where it it starts out like he's trying to do a shock moment. Uh, the, the joke in is that Kazakhstan is incredibly anti-Semitic. In the mm. first movie, they have these, oh god, like yeah. really kind of anti-Semitic stereotypes that they just play with, and they're just horrible. Uh, I don't think it's really funny. In fact, it's no. sort of like extreme. Uh, there's a way to kid racist attitudes and there's a way to just have racism in your movie. And I feel like mm-hmm. Borat is tipping a little too far in one direction and too many of its jokes. Uh, he decides to dress himself up in this really horrible stereotyped outfit and go to a synagogue. Mm-hmm. Sasha Baron Cohen, mm-hmm. by the way, is Jewish. He is Jewish. Just, so, so we're yeah, clear. Yeah. And, and uh, he goes into a synagogue dressed in this horrible stereotyped outfit and a woman in her 70s stands up and just talks to him and says, what are you doing? Okay, sit down with me. Talk to me. What, what, is, it you th- what is it you're thinking? No, no, we, we're not like that. Do I look like a monster to yeah. you? And I almost, that lady's like the hero of the year in terms of movies. She like, is. We didn't have any MCU superheroes. It's just she, that lady. She's such a friggin' decent human being yeah. that it, it, it's almost doesn't belong in a farce like this. Yeah, there's some there's some interesting moments of maturity in this movie that otherwise has a lot of extremely immature moments. Mm. 
Um, and you can I think see o- it's overall such... it's a lot more a mature film than the first. I mean, one, here's right? the thing: he's making such huge swings in terms of shock humor and cultural humor, and sometimes I agree. Sometimes he goes way too far in one direction, and it's just not funny for a while. Um, and I think that takes the film down. I think there's mm. it's it's not modulated as well as it could be. But I think overall, I think he's trying to use this character who has become synonymous with shock humor and just exposing horribleness and trying to use that character and that character's appeal to people who maybe aren't looking too deeply under the surface of it Mm. to say something a bit more thoughtful and a bit more mature Mm. in the most thoughtless and immature way possible. (laughs) Yeah. Um, there's something to be said for that. I'm not a huge fan of it, but I think it's an interesting film. Mm. I think the moments that work in it work really, really well. The moments that don't work are pretty cringy. Uh, but I'll, I'll say this. I didn't yeah. cringe nearly as much as I did watching the first film. That's fair. Uh, I think it's probably and, true. Yeah. And I'm not sure how well this is going to age, but I think this is incredibly timely and there's something to be said for well, that. You said you said it yourself. Mm. The original Borat is kind of a snapshot mm. of like that era of American politics, and this will probably feel the same way yeah. in 15, 20 years. I hope. I really hope it's not still like this. Mm. Uh, so we will see. Mm. We will see. But uh, in any case, uh, it, for me, it's a mixed bag, but the good mostly outweighs the bad. Um, moving on, uh, we had... Oh, do we... <laughs> Tell you what, let's just go into it. Let's just talk um, about it. This was a bad weekend for remakes. Yeah, there were, there were two notable remakes. Um, I guess one was just a second adaptation of a book. I I, I, I don't sure, like yeah. I don't like splitting hairs about like mm. that's not a re- well first off they're both second adaptations of oh I guess you're right yeah, because here's right. the thing when people say that like hey that's not a remake that's a readaptation nope you're yeah. splitting hairs they made the movie once they're doing it again are All they right. capitalizing so on the awareness of the previous film yes it's a remake mm. I every you could say every Hamlet is a remake I'm not gonna fight you on it I don't care All the right. important thing is it was made once and now we're doing it again. Everything else is just kind of being, you know, ridiculous. But so do you want to talk about the Hitchcock remake or the Nicholas Rogue remake? Let's talk about the Nicholas Rogue remake because this right. is the one we both saw. There yeah. is a remake of Nicholas Rogue's, uh, fa- uh, ni- I think it's 1990. 90, yeah. Uh, adaptation of Roald Dahl's children's book, The Witches, which is a movie. <laughs> witches. Uh, which is a <laughs> Stop it. It's a movie <laughs> that I saw. I'm probably eight when that movie came out. I mm. loved that movie when it came out. And there's a lot I still really like about it. I think it's a very fanciful adaptation. I think it understands horror like pretty well. There's a lot of really scary moments, and I think kids mm. really respond to that. Angelica Houston is amazing in it. Angelica Houston is the highlight. Uh, the, yeah. I, I think my biggest issue with uh, the 1990 version is I was actually already a big fan of the book. Yeah. So I was in that snobby state of mind saying, that's not like the book, even um, when I, I saw it when I was like 11. The only thing I the only thing I feel like is, okay, so the book, if you're unfamiliar with it, it's about, uh, turns out witches are real. And uh, witches are actually these like goblin-like creatures who have to hide behind like human makeup and wigs and wear gloves to hide their claws. And they really hate children. And they use all of their magic to destroy children. So if you're a child, you shouldn't trust anyone who tries to give you candy because it might be a witch. Uh, A child who has grown up with a grandmother who believes in witches and tells them all about them, they go to a hotel. Turns out the hotel is being used for the yearly conference of witches, which is a fun idea. Witches. Uh, But uh, turns out the kid actually was like playing with his pet mouse 
like in a big grand ballroom before it was being filled with witches and the witches come in and the kids hiding and he's hoping they don't see him. And they catch and, up and chill, children. First of all, Roald Dahl kind of hated children. The only people he, I, mean, I think the only person people, I think the only people Roald Dahl hated more than children were adults. He yeah, was kind he, of just he, a spiteful, he, mean he, he, man. He was honestly. a misanthropic fellow, and uh, yeah, in fact, he I, said some really terrible things throughout his life. Let's just be fair. Absolutely, he did, and, yeah. and uh, he's but he's an interesting fellow and a good yeah. author. And uh, I, I, he very famously uh, didn't want any of his uh, books adapted into movies because he saw what they did with Willy Wonka and he hated it. Which is weird because that's actually a pretty good movie, but whatever. Yeah, it, it's okay, but it's not faithful to his book. It's not entirely unfaithful either. No, it's not. Yeah. I, I would argue that the think, Tim Burton one actually changes more than the original, even though it's supposedly supposed to be more faithful. Yeah, uh, they keep like some of the the songs that Roald Dahl wrote for the which, book, or which in is the fine. Tim Burton film, yeah, which is. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, it's also kind of. I knew this about him even when I was eleven, and mm-hmm. he, I knew that Hollywood was like waiting with bated breath for him to pass away, mm-hmm. and the body wasn't even cold before they put the witches into production. So well, I, I also kind of resented I, it. I think actually the witches might have been. I think it might still been alive for the witches. No, I've been right at the tail end. Roald Dahl I heard died. he didn't. I heard he didn't like it. Or maybe he only read the screenplay or something. He, he died in maybe it was. Look it, it, was up. it was like that year. He died in ninety. Look, look it up. Um, but, uh, in any case, oh yeah, I guess. And the, the film came out like the previous, uh, August. So yeah, yeah. They, they, he, so, like, he had it. seen it. Yes. I heard he didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, although apparently I think he did like Angelica Houston because who doesn't, um, she, she's great. They, the makeup they came up with for her was oh, great. Oh, amazing. The book is way more disturbing. Well, yeah. Uh, they just gave her this sort of like ghoulish monster makeup, which is really cool looking in the movie. Uh, and they do something similar with this new remake. Uh, it's a, where, it's a, a different way, but yeah. But yeah, they, they don't do uh, what they do in the book, which is essentially make the Grand High Witch out of rotting meat. Like, mm. she doesn't really have a face. She just has, like, bare muscle and sinew and just, like, rotten mm. flesh. I think there's even worms in it. I don't know. It's a horror book. It's, it's a horror book for kids. Yeah, it, it um, is a horror story. Um, anyway, the kids, uh, the kid and another kid are transformed into mice, and it turns out the witch's whole plan uh, is to open up candy shops, and all the candies have magic poison in it that will turn children into mice. And then everyone will go eek a mouse and step on them. And then all the children of the world will be dead and in time release too. So they have have a plan. So they'll go home and like the next day they'll become a mouse. Anyway, it's up to the mice and the grandmother to try to find a way to stop it. Um, It's a pretty good concept. It is of course steeped in the idea that witches are bad and that Roald Dahl has said this in his books a couple of times that you can always tell a person who's ugly on the inside because they're ugly on the outside, which is a pretty Mm. fucked up thing to say, Roald, especially to kids. If he said, if he qualified that with in my books, that's the way I like to write, then still, still kind of a dick. Well, he writes it in the book. Like that's actually stated out loud. Mm. And this is something kids are kind of absorbing and it's just kind of a shitty thing to work Mm. with. But the, the first movie kind of sidesteps it pretty good. I think it's a good film. The The special effects are amazing. Angelica Houston is threatening enough. It works. Mm. Now there's a remake. Uh, it has been directed by Robert Zemeckis, of course, the director of Who Framed Roger Rabbit and, and Welcome Gump to, and Castaway. Welcome to Marwan. And- yeah. And, and the walk and a bunch of movies you didn't see. <laughs> yeah, his, his career isn't at an all time high right now. Um, it stars Anne Hathaway as the Grand High Witch and Octavia Spencer as the grandmother who knows about witches and is trying to save the day along with her kids uh, or her kid. Um, 
And and it's narrated by Chris Rock, and it has Stanley Tucci in it. And well, of course it has Stanley Tucci in it. Well, Stanley Tu Stanley it, Tucci hears it takes a, place in a hotel. We just throw him in anywhere. Stanley Tucci hears a camera running, and somehow he teleports in front of it. <laughs> um, and this one is actually there's a lot that actually changed in this adaptation. A biggest one is that it now takes place in America, mm. and it also takes place uh, the protagonist and his grandmother. It's a black family in. I forget if they specifically say, but it's like the 50s or 60s, right? It's 1963 in Alabama. Okay. They That's say, a very specific it's, time. It's a specific time and place. Uh, uh, with a specific context uh, for these characters, especially when you consider that they're going to be at a hotel, a big fancy hotel run by white people, and the villains are rich, mostly white women. Hmm. And the movie kind of... Desperately never, tries not to ever, connect with that. Ever, ever addresses once uh, systemic racism in Alabama in the 1960s. There's like a couple of moments where you can tell that Stanley Tucci, who plays like the, the concierge of this hotel, mm. and he's responsible for keeping order, and he's got to like speak to Octavia Spencer, and he speaks to her differently than he speaks to mm. other people. But that's Tucci's acting. That's, that's not something in the script. It's mostly just yeah. him in the moment, and he knows like... I actually know the context of this. This is actually kind of a thing. Mm. Um, yeah, it's weird because that right there is an, actually an interesting choice in how to frame this story. How wi that, yeah, yeah, the, white witches are going into black neighborhoods and preying on the children there. Yeah. There's context there. There's an interesting story to be had it's there. A big idea. That this movie complete, like deliberately sidestabs. Yeah, they go out of their way not to do it to the extent that you really didn't have to set it in the past. You could have just set it now. Yeah, yeah. And it really just doesn't have, have that impact. It's there, but again, mm. it just doesn't engage with it. At all. No. And so it's that's such a weird choice. That's mistake number one. Uh, I Robert Zemeckis is really interested in tech. Always. A, a lot of his, his more recent films have been very tech-oriented. The Walk is great from a technical perspective. The last act of The Walk, even mm. though the first two acts are basically just repeating the movie Man on Wire, which is mm. a better film, the last act on The Walk is superlative. It is yeah. really great. And... Uh, I'm not sure if this will ever be possible again, but if they ever screen it on a giant screen in 3D again, see Please it that see way, that. because that's it's the way so it was better. made. I'm so the, glad I saw that in IMAX 3D. Yeah, that the, was incredible. The idea of recreating a, a, a high-wire walk between the World Trade Centers and having the camera look down and having this 3D oh, stretch way away from you, it's it really, really wonderful. really one of the best uses of 3D yeah. I've ever seen. Really great. It, it's really, really great. Welcome to Marwin had a lot of mocap. He's interested in motion captures and three motion capture features. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Because there was a Christmas Carol, Beowulf, and uh, Polar Express. And Polar Express. Yep. Uh, so he's really interested in technology. So you know we're in going to have some interesting uh, effects. But do we? But we don't here. The, the, yeah. the thing is, uh, he recreated the witches rather than uh, they. They do have to have like they have the, these uh, wigs. Wigs with like rashes. They have wig rash. Mm -hmm. So they have like these weird kind of grotesque bald heads. They have uh, flattened feet. That's in the book. Uh, they don't just have claws, but they're also missing their middle and ring fingers. Mm -hmm. They have like these three-fingered handy claws. Which, which is an eerie thing to look at. It, it's Yeah, um, you know, the effects are effective. So they mm -hmm. have these kind of cool monstery hands with long fingers. That and look Hathaway like has this mouth that opens up like doubly wide, like mm. the Joker's scars. Like, like we can actually see seams on her cheeks, like this yeah. little Joker smile. That's and it creepy. opens up and she's got this big smile. And there was one really cool moment where she had to reach into a vent to grab the and mice, to grab yeah. some mice, and her arms sort of like unhinged, and she grew extra elbows, and that was kind of cool. Looking. That one bit right mm. there—that's the one bit where I'm looking at this moment, and this is 
Not something I've seen in a movie before. It is visually inventive. It's mm. genuinely... If I was a kid, that would have scared the shit out of me. Yeah, it's like something from one of the It movies. Yeah, it's yeah. really, 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 really creepy. And for a brief moment, you see like what this movie could be with like a different approach, a different idea, mm. a different concept of what the evil would look like and how it would take shape. And for a moment, you're like, cool. Because there's a couple of things in here that work. Anne Hathaway is really good in this. I could say that about pretty much any Anne Hathaway movie. Anne, Anne Hathaway is not good in this. You don't think I'm, so? I'm going I to, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come at you on this fun. one. Because, well, I, I agree with you on that point. Okay. She's having fun, but I think Robert Zemeckis just let her do whatever, mm-hmm. which means she doesn't really emerge as like a substantial villain with uh, a kind of threat factor. She's, mm. she's a grand high witch. We know she's an evil monster. I don't blame and she's her just for that. A, I blame the screenplay and the filmmaking for the, yeah, that. Yeah, the screenplay. Because they don't give her as much to do. She's underwritten, but you think, you know, Anne Hathaway or Robert Zemeckis would direct her in such a way where she seems a little bit here's, more threatening. Here's, here's, and so yeah. uh, instead, she's doing her Inspector Clouseau shtick, where she has this weird, <laughs> thick accent, and she has this really strange behavior, and she's berating people, uh, even though she's behaving really strange, and no one would put up with that kind of behavior. Yeah. Uh, there's a gag late in the movie where she has trouble pronouncing the word garlic yeah which is goes on for what's it's 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 only like 30 seconds but it feels like an hour it just goes on and on and on it's it's a long gag it means nothing and goes nowhere it's 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 like the the bit in the pink panther where uh in the remake of the pink panther where steve martin can't say the word hamburger because of his like his his accent is too thick and I think it works with Steve Martin because Steve Martin knows what the hell he's doing and it's a comedy well, also, film. Also, there's more on the line. Like, he has to pronounce that word correctly in order for the scene to continue. Mm. This is just, we just chose to have her mispronounce garlic because it's funny. And Which then is this, Stanley Tucci didn't quite get it. Like, it doesn't, weird, weird impl- good. implacable Eastern European accent. Yeah. And... I, okay, I will, I will, I will, I will backtrack and, and, and restate. Okay. Anne Hathaway may not be giving a great performance. Okay. <laughs> She got me through chunks of this film because right. I was able to at least look at Anne Hathaway and go, ha, like Octavia Spencer is one of the more reliable actors we have. She's really, really great in everything. Like see her in Ma. Ma like is a terrific. weird movie. Yeah, she's amazing. I, I, I in like it. Ma a lot. Um, but uh, here and for a bit, she's playing the grandmother. And I think she's a really, really great grandmother. Once the kids turn into mice, she all, of loses have, all, all of a sudden they have more character. That's well, a little weird. Yeah. Well, that's also true. But like she starts having to like just, look down at a coffee table and say exposition for a while. Mm. And you can just see her passion for the material start to dwindle. And, and you just realize this out. a little bit. I'm like, I, I can't blame her. It's a, it's a rough scene and it mm. stops getting. And honestly, the pacing of the sucker is weird. Like by the time we get to the hotel, the movie's been on for a while. We spent a lot of time setting everything, a up, lot right? of time setting everything up. And then we spent a bit of time getting to the point where the kids are mice. That part feels paced just about right. And then once they're mice, it, it just rushes mm-hmm. and all of these scenes that should be like really t- intense or frightening or suspenseful how are they going to do this they're mice like all of these moments just fall really 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 flat yeah and yeah. nothing quite works until finally they get through this incredibly rushed ending and you see like the how they capitalize on this big opening moment where, like, Chris Rock is showing, like, slides to a kid. Chris Rock narrates, by yeah, the way. you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chris Rock is showing... He's, he's telling the story by a slideshow. And you know how kids love slides. I'm going to sit still for that for two hours. Um, but uh, at the end, we find out... And, and this isn't really a big plot thing. The end, it feels like this weird recruitment video for why you should absolutely not trust... Hey, kids, don't trust and, in fact, hate women who look different. 
That's ultimately this note that they decide well, I, to leave on. And boy, I, is that shitty. I, under, I understand the, the kids rule, grownups drool message can, that comes in a lot. That. And, and even though I'm a grown up, I love that message. Sell it to kids. It's fine. I am an adult. I suck. Yeah. You know, no, uh, we, we're not cool. We're not with it. We don't get yeah. what you're going through. So, I never. No, so I, I, please. I, I understand that a kid. Come on in and replace a, us. A kid coming in and watching Home Alone about a child who does grievous bodily injury to two adults. Yeah. Is going to be fun for a kid because I imagine most kids aren't going to be doing that. They're just going to be living in that fantasy. I, I liked I could, Home Alone you know. as a kid. As an adult, I don't think it's that great. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that perfect example <laughs> so right there. I'm trying to put myself in the mindset of a kid watching something like The Witches. And even then, it's so brief a moment. This mm. kind of kids, you're going to be recruited to hurt adults. And the kids get, go, yay! If the movie was a little bit more about that, about how uh, kids is always being put upon by the adult world, like in the 1970s Willy Wonka movie, where all adults yeah. hate Charlie and, like a and he's really lot of role doll books. That's yeah. what Matilda's about, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I like actually like the movie version of Matilda. It's okay. Um, it's okay. Part of me yeah. wishes it had been British, but whatever. That's that's an epic. The, the, this was the American version. It's, it's a pretty fine. good American I, I version. Think, I think Danny DeVito did a, a really good directing job. Yeah. I, I love the Trunchbull and I love Matilda. I've never seen the Broadway really. version, but I really like the soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I don't know really the, the, the Broadway yeah. version at all, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, if, if they had spent all of that opening time letting us know the world that the main character lived in, mm-hmm. then maybe I could get behind that ending a little bit more. If he's put upon and all of a sudden he grows up and he leads a charge against mm-hmm. this world that he was previously oppressed by. But it's so but he insular. We only yeah, see him he, and his grandmother. It's only him and his grandmother. He doesn't experience prejudice, which is a problem in this movie, because given the, the setting and the race of the characters. Yes. Yeah. It's a weirdly halcyon view yeah, it's, of a really racially... Unequal, 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 a really yeah. racist time in America. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, and it's and, and it seems like a like a very distinct intentional choice. Yeah, it, it, even if it was one of those things where the boy uh, isn't really experiencing racism firsthand, but he mm. sees it in yeah. a few scenes, like that would have been effective. Yeah, and there's like a few things at the hotel where people are like sort of confused as mm. to like why Octavia Spencer gets the sweetheart deal, and they have to explain it's because. She's friends with the chef, mm. you know, that kind of thing. But like, even then we really don't, yeah, doesn't tackle it. It just seems, this movie seems afraid. This movie seems afraid. Which is to- weird because Zemeckis likes to push the envelope. Yeah. We did Tales from the Crypt. There's a, a scene early in the movie where we establish the, the, the wickedness that the witches are up to by turning a, a childhood friend of the Octavia Spencer character mm. into a chicken. Yeah. And they end up just like, oh, look. They're now our child is missing and now he's a chicken. We just have a new chicken and they put it out back. You know that old Zemeckis would have had the family eat that chicken. Yeah, that's the whole point. If they you just keep at, it as a pet in this version. That's one of the reasons so why the witches don't have that much intimidation factor. If you look at the original Nicholas Rogue film, I can't remember if this is what was in the book or not. I think it was. There's this whole bit where the witches, like, the, the grandmother tells a story about a witch who put a child into a painting yeah. And like the whole family a sees the scary child, like, scene in the book. Yeah. And then there's later on when Angelica Houston comes into the hotel, she passes by a painting and she sees a little girl in the painting and she just pokes it. And you just know she did that. <laughs> and it's really fucked up and scary here. She turned the lady into a chicken and that is bad. But yeah, I thought they were going to eat that chicken. Why? Cause witches are evil. They're not just like, and now you're a whimsical chicken. Like, no, 
not really. You're not setting a tone here. You're not no, making it's, it's it. almost silly. Uh, th- this rather is than something that, threatening. This is something that even like that, like Disney understood. You, you, children are like respond to big villains. Mm. We want our villains big, and just having them look weird isn't enough. We need to see them be bad. Yeah, do something. Maleficent curses a baby to die. That's in a kid's movie. Okay? (laughs) The witches can do something comparable. Let Mm. it happen. And it just, again, it just feels like it's not willing to go to any length. And that's really annoying and frustrating. Yeah, yeah. I I was so, so let down by this. Zemeckis is... He'll, because of some of the hits he's made, he'll always be a little close to my heart. I love Roger yeah. Rabbit. He's made a lot of great uh, movies. He's made a lot of really, yeah, he had a, a really winning streak there in the uh, from like the mid '80s to the early yeah. '90s. All the Back to the Future movies mm. are good. Used Cars is really, really mm. good. Um, again, Hoover and Roger Rabbit, obviously. Yeah, uh, um, yeah he he did produce. Uh, uh, Death Becomes Her is brilliant. Death Becomes Her is excellent. If you're looking for a film to see for Halloween that you've that you've never uh, seen, doesn't get talked about enough. Death Becomes Her, one of the best horror comedies of all time. I I even like films like Cast Away and What Lies Beneath. I think yeah. those are good movies. Uh, what Lies Beneath is a little long for its for its own good, but it's it's good. It's got a, got a good terse, almost European tone. If, sure, if I can say that. So I think he's a very talented filmmaker, but uh, I don't know what he's thinking these days. Welcome to Marwin was a weird experiment that didn't quite work. I don't think it was the horror that, that well, nobody did. <laughs> I don't think it was the horror that some critics made it out to be. It was just sort of a strange idea. And I yeah. appreciate strangeness. Uh, but yeah, this time around, it's like, okay, you got a Roald Dahl book. Roald Dahl is a dour man and a dour writer. <laughs> Make a dour film. Make something really off the that's wall. Why, that's why really kids responded to yeah. his works is that they weren't afraid to be mean or sad mm. or scary. They were actually pretty confrontational about yeah, those yeah. things. So, I, I would think he would be a good match for this material, but he just did not bring it. All right. Well, uh, speaking of bad remakes, uh, this weekend we all, oh, this week actually, it happened earlier this week, we got a remake of Rebecca uh, mm. based on a novel by Daphne du Maurier. Uh, and uh, the original was, of course, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, it is the only film Alfred Hitchcock directed that won Best Picture at the Academy Awards. And in fact, we're going to be talking about it on the next episode, or I guess two episodes hence, uh, of Only the Best, our Patreon exclusive podcast. We're up to the two episodes of 1940. Yeah, because they had 10 nominees uh, that year. We're doing five per episode. We'll get to it, I guess, in November. Mm. Um, but uh, it is... Uh, a really, really grand motion picture, the original. Uh, it is about a young woman uh, who has no station to speak of. And because she is working as a lady's, like, like uh, assistant on a, on a trip, uh, she ends up accidentally meeting a very, very, very rich man named Maxim de Winter, mm-hmm. uh, played in the original by Laurence Olivier. Uh, she is played by Joan Collins. Uh, he is very deep and very penetrating and his wife died like a year or two ago and he's still in mourning and oh how fascinating and mysterious is he they fall in love they get married everything is great until they come back to his house Manderley where the ghost of his wife still lives and I don't mean literally what I mean is literally every room in a house is some kind of like uh, uh, alter to her memory every single thing that she does people even the servants are saying well that's not how mrs de winter did it and it's like i'm mrs de winter stop that and ultimately she feels like she can't live up to this legacy and it ends up becoming actually really intimidating and scary and it's, and it's uh and it's more than heavily implied mm-hmm. that the uh the head maid was having an affair with the dead wife miss danvers yeah, yeah. miss danvers was 
there, there's a scene where she like rubs the dead woman's underwear on the new wife. It's like, yeah, yeah this this is not subtle Hitchcock. Anyway, it's not my favorite Hitchcock movie, mm-hmm. but it's a very good movie. Uh, and it's definitely worth repeating and it's uh, worth rewatching. Uh, and it holds up pretty well today. So now we have this new version directed by Ben Wheatley. Uh, it is a 10 hour miniseries. What? No, I'm sorry. It's two hours. It just two. feels like ten. <laughs> it's not a ten-hour miniseries. I really, really, really had trouble just sitting through this boring ass adaptation of Rebecca. This really, really oh. drab adaptation of Rebecca. Really annoying. So I'm almost sorry I missed it. Me too. I think we'd had a good conversation about it. So this one stars Lily James. Uh, in the Joan Fontaine role as the soon-to-be Mrs. DeWinter. Uh, it stars Army Hammer in the uh, Laurence Olivier role. It's fine, fine enough casting. It's a good casting. You got Kristen Scott Thomas as Mrs. Danvers, the maid, okay, who's, of yeah, course, yeah. Uh, uh, trying to live up to mm-hmm. Rebecca's memory. Good cast. No one's denying that's a that's a pretty good cast. Army Hammer and Lily James maybe aren't as good as Joan Fontaine and, and Laurence Olivier, Olivier. <laughs> but few are, so uh-huh. I'm willing to be a little forgiving here. Uh the problem is, I don't think it has a perspective. Hmm. I don't think it gets any aspect of the story, like, at all, to speak of. Hmm. Um, we It's the opening act, which is kind of like this, uh, uh, you know, big, wonderful romance uh, between a young woman and an older man, and he's so much richer, and isn't it romantic? Uh, my wife and partner Michelle put it beautifully. It feels like it's being told on Instagram. It feels like it's just <laughs> a series of images just to give you the gist of it. Aren't we in love? And then when they get to the house, it just becomes redundant. It just every single scene mm. has the exact same point and moment. And it just I just want Rebecca to do it. Like take a drink every time someone says Rebecca, you'll be dead. <laughs> um, and then. It just doesn't, there doesn't feel like a looming threat. It doesn't feel like our protagonist has her own motivation or feelings about anything. It's ostensibly, it's a story about class. Here's a woman who came from nothing, who is now at being expected to be the head of a giant rich household and live up to that legacy. And she cannot do it. And that's something that she feels like she cannot understand. But she doesn't seem to have any real big feelings about that one hmm. way or the other. I mean, she feels bad. She doesn't like being compared to Rebecca, but... It's not really about where she's from or what she's doing. In a way, it's kind of a lot like the witches where it just feels like they're fleeing the subtext. Hmm. They're fleeing the theme. They're just trying to just give you the gist of the story. And maybe, and it, in, it I would maybe be okay with that if it felt like a bodice ripper, you know, hmm. kind of just sultry romance where we're just focusing on the doomed gothic romance quality of it. But they can't even do that right. There is literally a scene in this movie where the protagonist, Lily James, mm-hmm. is running from a giant castle on fire. Now, if you've ever seen the cover of a gothic romance, you know that that's the cover. <laughs> right. Every single fucking one has a woman running from a castle, often it's on fire. <laughs> they can't even get that shot right. It's like oh, she's geez. often a little bit in the corner here. We're just sort of seeing the castle over there in the other corner. I'm like, dude, fucking sell it. What are you doing here? This is not... This isn't dry material. This is actually really like loaded and guttural and passionate material. This is material about like regret and shame and jealousy and fear and doesn't fucking get it. I mean, like nothing in this movie 
like explains like or, or reveals that the filmmakers had like a particular take on the material mm. or even, even something new even if it was something daring i would be like okay i get why this was made but this is just like hey you know the novel and hitchcock movie we're 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 gonna give you the gist that's a weird take because the director of this is is Ben Wheatley, you said, yeah. who did like High Rise. Uh, yeah, I like High Rise a lot. Uh, what was the the shootout movie that he did? Oh, um, um gu- not Guns Akimbo. Uh, uh, the Gunny, the gun, gun the Gunny, movie. the Gunny McShoot. The whole movie was just a big shootout in a warehouse yeah. where a bunch of celebrities murder each other. And yeah, both of those also movies, with Army Hammer. Yeah, those movies are very like super stylized and have you know a lot of. Uh, energy and darkness to them, and mm-hmm. so it's it seems like he would be a good match for something like Free Rebecca. Fire. Free Fire, that's, that's what we're thinking. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ben Wheatley also did that movie, but he's yeah, he he's doing a Kill List, which most people like more than I did. Or, or most, I, I didn't yeah. like Kill List, but uh, okay. I thought you did. Weird. No, not not yeah. wasn't a big fan of Kill List. Huh. All right. Um, but yeah, it yeah. seems like he'd be well paired to something, no, like to so. turn it in something kind of weird gallows kind of hammer and type movie. Maybe, but here's my thing with Ben Wheatley and the films of his that I've seen. I haven't seen every single thing he's mm. ever done, but they don't tend to be very emotional, romantic tales. And I think oh, in order to tell Rebecca, you need to be able to get swept up in the romance of it like the protagonist is mm. and only then see the horror underneath. And I think he understands that it's creepy here, but I don't think he really understood the appeal, or at least he doesn't demonstrate an understanding of the appeal in the first place. Hmm. It should be romantic until it's terrifying. And I feel like it's neither of those things because it's neither of those things. Like they both play off of each other and Rebecca Mm -hmm. and, and Rebecca, I will say this to be fair, Rebecca, I, I, I've always had an issue with Rebecca and that I always feel like, even the Hitchcock version, like, it's great, it's great, it's great. They explain the plot, and then it keeps going for 25 minutes. And, like, <laughs> it's just one of those where I just feel like it it peaks, and then it just, it has to wrap everything up. A, a, a lot of falling action. Yeah, yeah and I just, I, I think that's just kind of like a, little, some, a somewhat uncinematic flaw in the narrative. Uh, it doesn't ruin it, per se, or at least doesn't have to, mm-hmm. but um, here it's just, I I was watching the movie, and I was like... I assumed it was an hour into it, and then I look at the clock, and I'm 40 minutes into it. And then I, I ran through, like, I'm going to need more snacks. Like, <laughs> I just, I already had some olives. I need, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I just, oh, no, I wouldn't do that. But, like, yeah, I just, no. Mm. Pass, hard pass, one of the worst movies I've seen this year. That's so, the- yeah. It's I mean, kind of I mean, foolhardy errands to remake Rebecca yeah. anyway, but yeah. I mean, but nothing, done. Like, anything could be remade. I think, I think classic lit, uh, mm. and I think Rebecca is at a place now where it's old enough. It feels like classic lit. It's um, I th- I think it's fair game. I mm. think it's fair game to re to revisit it and like reintroduce it to a new generation. I think that's an important thing that we do to that it doesn't just become this one really old thing yeah. that young people disregard. I think it's important to keep it fresh, but this doesn't keep it fresh. This actually yeah, well, makes it seem more stilted and uninteresting yeah. than the original film is. And of course the original film was great. So yeah. Here's my theory. I think you could get a younger audience interested in older movies if you marketed them like new movies. Yeah. Like, don't don't change, don't remake the movie. Don't mm. say, this is our version of Rebecca. Just re-release Rebecca. Cut a on, new trailer yeah, in, a, in exactly. a more contemporary style to sell the story the mm. way you, you should. Give it the context they need, basically. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's it. I think this is one of the reasons why I think, you know, 
most movies that are more than like 25 years old really benefit from having like a Turner Classic Movies introduction. Yeah. It, and then that goes for even like the, the 90s the Os- now. The Osborne treatment. Like, hey, listen. Here's what ha- here's what was going on when this movie came out. Here's where cinema was. Here's mm-hmm. why this was noteworthy and unique. Here's where the people were when they were making it. Here's where they were in their careers. And here's in, in case this isn't your usually your jam. Here's a few notes on things to keep an eye on in terms of the movie's themes and mm-hmm. like how it's telling its story or whatever. And no ruin it. No spoiling. Just get you in the mood. Set the stage. And then when you watch it, you can go ah. <laughs> because you might not necessarily be entering on that wavelength, especially if you're not like particularly interested and enthused in film history and doing that research on your own. Mm. So, yeah, I think a film like Rebecca could play really, really well today. You just have to set it up. I think that's important. Yeah, I, I think it's a good enough movie that a teenager could just sit and watch it and have a good time. Uh, oh, I think so, too. But uh, I just I know not everyone is going to come in with the same eagerness to uh, to give it some credit, yeah, there's some well, people who have an issue with black and white movies or older movies, and well, I think why, we can, I think we can get here. them. I think yeah, we can feel- snag them, but I just think we gotta we gotta you know sort of trick them. And I think it's <laughs> a different just, kind of thing. Just convince them. You well, know, that's that, what I mean. That these movies are, are really rad, and you should watch them. And indeed, a lot of them yeah. are. And uh, I didn't mean trick them. I just mean like trick them into uh, uh, letting down their defenses. Yeah. And like, oh, that's old, and it's good. <laughs> Also, there's a lot of crappy movies that are old, too. We're not pretending otherwise. But if, generally speaking, if we're going out of our way to show you something, there's a decent chance it might be worth your time. Anyway, uh, yeah, Rebecca. Rebecca. Yeah, bad, bad film. Uh, tell me about the new Sofia Coppola film, which has actually came out a while ago in theaters, but it's just it now was, on uh, digital. Yeah, it's, uh, it was playing in theaters on like at the beginning of October, and it's yeah. just uh, just this last Friday was released on Apple TV Plus exclusively. Ooh. And uh, so I took the opportunity to to review it. Um, as I mentioned in uh, my review of for the war, uh, the war with Grandpa, mm. uh, films hide in theaters now and are seen when they're straight to video. That's like, so weird. That's, that's an inversion of what we grew up with. Major shift. Uh, yeah, this is the, the latest film from Sofia Coppola. It stars Rashida Jones as a Manhattan uh, writer who is suffering through a really horrible case of writer's block. Wow. And she's married to a Wayans, one of the many Wayans. Oh. It's Marlon Wayans. Okay. And uh, he is a complete workaholic. He just started up a business and he's kind of distant and she's starting to feel it. And uh, add on top of that, she discovers one day a bag of one of his coworkers' toiletries in his suitcase after a business trip. And this looks really, really fishy. Got it. She calls her dad. Her dad is played by Bill Murray. Cool. And. Her dad is a complete and utter Lothario. He flirts with every woman he sees, and he gives speeches about how it's man's biological imperative to spread his seed. So of course all men cheat, and yeah. and you know it, it. It doesn't take you very long to realize that he's justifying some infidelity that he engaged in uh, with Rashida Jones' mother. Yeah. Uh, when uh, Rashida Jones tells Bill Murray, "I think my husband might be cheating on me," uh, his eyes light up, and <sighs> he says, "Okay, great." Let's find out. Let's investigate. I know some guys. I know concierges and stuff. And uh, they, in this uh, process of investigating whether or not uh, her husband might be cheating on her, Rashida Jones and Bill Murray begin to not like rebuild 
bond necessarily, mm-hmm. but get to know each other as adults a little bit better. Right. Uh, and I think that's something that uh, this film really is exploring that's unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's... I don't see too many films about how uh, adult children reconnect with their parents. Uh, un- unless it's to like to get over some sort of like trauma or argument they previously had. The like, one just that comes to-, to mind is Albert Brooks's mother with Debbie Reynolds. Yeah. yeah. Where he uh, realizes or believes that all of his issues as an adult, all of his baggage stem mm-hmm. from a uh, failed relationship with his mother who isn't actually that bad. She's just kind of a nag yeah. and doesn't understand him. And, uh, so he moves back in with her and it's all about them trying to like her, try, him trying to get her to treat him like an adult and him trying to understand yeah. her as a person and not just his mom. And it's actually really good. It, it's really good, but there's, yeah. you know, that's mostly like, it's a comedy film. So yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. infantilization <laughs> jokes and that sort of stuff. Yeah. I'm no, I'm just trying to think of like yeah. a, other good examples. Well, that's the first one yeah. that came to mind. Yeah. Um, and eventually they have a confrontation about their the nature of their relationship, the father and the daughter. Yeah. And and we do end up find finding out about the husband. Okay. It's an incredibly slight movie. It feels like a short. Hmm. Uh it, it's an hour and forty minutes, but the ideas presented in this are not so earth shattering that it they couldn't have been explored in a much shorter film or even like a written short story. Uh it, everything seems for Sofia Coppola really kind of pat and straightforward. Sofia Coppola is notoriously much more of a mood director. Yeah, watch her movie somewhere sometimes. It's barely, yeah. There's barely a plot in it. Like, there's hardly really, any dialogue in that yeah, movie. There's a lot yeah. of just long, sustained shots. Are you going back all the way to the virgin suicides? Yeah. These are mood pieces. They're all about sort of angst of a certain scenario. Or, you know, Lost in Translation is about finding a connection more than it is about the, the nitty-gritty of the plot. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's when she's operating at her strongest is when she's just sort of sitting and feeling rather than having conversations. And this film is all about conversations. It's about the dialogue. It's about the movement. It's actually, uh, I hesitate to make the comparison. It's more like a Woody Allen film mm. than it is a Sophia Coppola. Well, when you said it was about mm. a writer with writer's block and mm. infidelity, I was actually yeah. thinking to myself, I've, I've seen that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, <laughs> I've, seen, I've a, seen a lot of those movies. That's a, like, a lot of writers write oh, about writers who can't write. Yeah. It's almost like New York is a character in the story. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it's it's a New York film about a writer who has writer's block and the relationship with her dad. And it all feels so mechanical, especially if coming as it does from Sofia Coppola. Well, let's put that aside for a second. Again, I didn't see this one, but put that aside for a second. And let's just uh, let's uh, say... Okay, so for Sofia Coppola, there's there's a bit of a formula here. Mm. It's a bit more conventional in some ways. But setting that aside, assuming this is the first Sofia Coppola film you ever saw, mm. is it good? It's it's fine. It's fine. It's mm. it's not uh, earth. Like I said, it deals with kind of modest ideas. There's not any sort of deep complexity to any of these relationships, and there, you know, the the symbols are really kind of obvious. And the the dialogue isn't particularly witty or penetrating. There's a few twists here and there that f- feel a little contrived, even. Yeah. Uh, no, it's it's not an earth shattering film. If this were Sofia Coppola's first movie, I would think she's just sort of a, an ordinary director for hire. Uh. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't be impressed by this. You, you wouldn't this think this is the work movie. of an auteur. No. no okay. No. Oh, that's, even, that's a shame. Even the movies of hers that I don't like, the like the remake of The Beguiled, at least there's like some interesting things going on in that movie. I don't like that movie, but I think there's like some thought in that film. Yeah, I mean, it's not an uninteresting film. Exactly. Even though it doesn't quite work, yeah. Well, that's a shame. Hmm. 
Anyway, it, it, it was a bit of a pity. A bit of a pity. Yeah. Anyway, uh, well, uh, let's re- uh, let's review our movies on the critically acclaimed scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, as always, we review our films on a scale of C minus to C plus, where the lowest the film can get is a C minus. That's below average, isn't it? Yeah, that's everything from <laughs> we don't recommend it to the worst thing ever made. Boy, how is that? Is that an average film? Most uh, most films are indeed average mm-hmm. because that's the definition of average. And uh, when it's an average, we give it a C, because C means average. Mm-hmm. Cool. And then the highest rating we can give a movie is a C+. A C+, is above average, isn't it? So we give a movie that we recommend, whether it's slightly, highly, or whether we consider it the best movie ever made, we give that a C+. <laughs> that's, how we, that's how we do it. Mm-hmm. Whitney, we're yes. going to go backwards, as we always do. Uh, on the Rocks, how does it rank mm-hmm. on the critically acclaimed scale? It's a C. See, it's efficient, mm. plain, not bad, but yeah. plain. Okay, mm. uh, let's see. Rebecca, Rebecca is is quite a C minus. Like mm. it's not like an, an act of incompetence or anything. It just doesn't tell its story well, and it's clear the elements are there. It's clear the cast is there. It's not the worst looking movie ever, but it just it ha- it lacks passion. Mm. It lacks drive. It lacks focus, and it doesn't even explore its ideas very well. Um, it's just a kind of a kind of a bad movie, I guess. <laughs> All right, uh, the witches. The witches. That's also a C minus. Kind of misguided. Yeah. They didn't do anything with those ideas. Yeah, they set up all these interesting, like, potential new takes and some exciting ideas for visual effects. Mm. And there was an expression we were, like, talking about the movie while I was watching it that I keep coming back to. It was, uh, look, they half-assed it as best they could. <laughs> and I feel like that's what they did. They 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 put a lot of effort into something mm. that they didn't put a lot of effort into conceiving. And mm. as a result, it just feels kind of flat. It's not unwatchable. I think Anne Hathaway, Octavia Spencer, and some decent like production and costume design make it. Oh, you can watch it, but you're not going to get anything out of it. It's just mm. a, a, a just a disappointing film. Uh, let's see, Borat, subsequent mm. movie film. Uh, you know, what? I'll give it a C plus. Okay, I thought it was funny, and I think it's very pointed. I think it's mature. A lot more mature than the last Borat film, that's for sure. I'll grant you it's more mature than the last Borat film. I think I like it better than the last Borat film, mm. but I'm still going to err on the high C here, okay. where I just think it's too much of a mixed bag. When it's good, it's really, really good. When yeah. it's bad, it's pretty cringy or just not that funny for a chunk, but then it peaks again, so for me, it's just half and half. All right. Uh, but it is more mature, and I do appreciate some of the things it was attempting to explore. Mm. Uh, and then finally, of course, the big release of the week, Tremors, Shrieker Island... Whitney, where do you stand on Tremor Shrieker Island? It, it's, uh, like most of the Tremor sequels, it's a C. Yeah. Higher than you'd expect. Yeah. For the seventh G- G- film... Genial, approachable, watchable, fun monster for, movie with a great character. For the seventh film, for the sixth sequel mm. in a franchise that had only one theatrical release, this is pretty danged good. Yeah. Um, it's... A little less inspired than some of the better sequels that that have been in the series, but people are having fun in it. It's a perfectly good watch. It is a perfectly like, right down the middle, maybe even slightly higher, just because I'm a fan of the franchise. Uh, just a C. All right. Uh, but um, 
for Tremors, a C is kind of a C plus. <laughs> like again, you got to put this grading in context. On a, this is on a, a curve a little this bit. Is, this is a bit of a curve. We were grading on a straight to video curve. This would be a C plus, but we're not. This is hmm. just we got to treat it like anything else because all movies go straight to video now. Uh, and this is a, this is a mm. C, but I still love the franchise. And if you haven't explored it in depth, um, it's a good time. Yeah. All right. So that is the new releases for the week. Uh, this week for the critically acclaimed streaming club, where uh, Whitney and I each take two films on a streaming service that we haven't seen. Maybe both of us haven't seen it, but certainly one of us hasn't seen it. We put it on a poll and we give it to our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. And we let our patrons decide every single week what movie we're going to review. And this week, we put in a whole bunch of horror films that are currently available on Peacock, which is an interesting streaming service. It's relatively new if you haven't checked it out yet. Um, a lot of it is free. Just got to sign up for it. Uh, some of the like higher profile titles are behind a paywall. But a lot of it's free. And there's actually a lot of neat stuff on there. And mm. the film you chose, which I'm actually a little surprised... Uh, was Neil Marshall's Doomsday. Well, this one came out in 2008, uh, yeah. which is super recent for, as far as these polls tend to go. Yeah, I mean, it's not the most recent. Um, I think the most recent one we've ever done is Train to Busan. But... Yeah, um, which was directed by uh, Neil Marshall, who made a bit of a stir uh, a few years before this with a film called The Descent, which is about a bunch of spelunkers who fight monsters in a cave. Mm -hmm. And then before that, he mm. had done a cult favorite uh, werewolf movie called Dog Soldiers, which frequently ends up on lists of the best werewolf movies ever made, but I think that has a little less to do with how good Dog Soldiers is and a little more to do with how, how few, few good werewolf movies there are. There really aren't that many like yeah. four-star classic werewolf movies. It's a cool flick, but it's not amazing. But after those two movies, it seemed like, oh, maybe this guy's the next big thing. Yeah, and uh, so they gave him a bigger budget, mm -hmm. a much higher concept, and this came in, uh, like, the late 2000s, right when... And we've talked about this before. Uh, we talked about it a lot when we uh, on Cancel Too Soon, when we talked about Blood Drive. Yeah. That there was this weird micro-trend, right at, uh, at this time, of Neo-Grindhouse, where a lot... Like, it was all nostalgia-based, but mm. it was all this new high-octane reinterpretation of very specific types of Grindhouse movies from the 1970s. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not ushered in by the movie Grindhouse. It was actually that was just part of the trend, as it turns yeah, out. Yeah, there was definitely a mini um, a mini trend there. Yeah, of the, everyone there was, just sort of paying homage to. I think Kill Bill helped that a lot. Actually. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think you're. But um, yeah. But Doomsday was square in the middle of this. It is a uh, homage film through and through. Mm -hmm. It uses the Albertus font, so you know it's been watching a lot of John Carpenter. Yeah, I think I've seen a lot of John Carpenter, and, actually. Uh, and when it came out, I remember hearing a lot of great things about it. Mm. Rona Mitro was going to be the next big thing. She wasn't. Uh, <laughs> she was for, like, like three years there. She replaced Kate Beckinsale in one of those Underworld movies. Well, she didn't replace her. She played a very similar character in a prequel. Oh, I thought it was the same character. No, oh, no, because okay. the idea of the Underworld movies is, like, one, two, four, and five are in the present day or in the very near future. Um, and they're about how, like, for many generations, werewolves and vampires have been at war. Mm. And three, the prequel, Rise of the Lycans, is about why they're at war. And it goes mm. back to, like, the medieval times. And, yeah. and uh, Michael Sheen was this heroic noble werewolf who was in love with a young vampire woman played by Rona Mitra. 
it's basically Romeo and Juliet with werewolves and vampires, and then once it was all done, they they're, just went to war. There are worse ideas. It's actually yeah. probably the best film in that series. That's it's the one I haven't seen. Yeah. Uh, it's coherent. I, oh, God, okay, well, because none of the other ones are. By default, it wins. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this one came out, but I missed it, and it's one I had always regretted missing, so I finally got to catch up with it. And it's it gave me, like, really sharp flashbacks to, like, a few months in 2008 when this came out. <laughs> That's a very specific yeah, chronology. It's, it was because, yeah, it did come at a very, very specific time. Uh, it's super duper stylized. It has a really big cast of impressive actors. Mm-hmm. And it is uh, it Escape from New York, but instead of New York, it's Scotland. And instead of a prison, it's Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Inside the prison. So the idea is, in the near future when the movie came out, there was a horrible pandemic that broke out. Interesting. And people had to stay inside. Yeah, that's actually a plot point to talk about. People were supposed to stay inside and just wait it out. But of course they didn't. And then everyone was dying en masse. And so the government had to institute martial law. And they just blocked off Scotland. They just put a they big... Wall, they walled off the whole yeah, country. They, they just turned Hadrian's Wall into this big, giant, like, King Kong fortress. And that's it. They just left Scotland to die. Like, we don't care about Scotland. Which... There's some political commentary there, which I wish they got into a little bit more, <laughs> because there's some contention about England and Scotland. Um, uh, Rona Mitra plays uh, a woman who, when she was a little kid, she was like the last person out of Scotland. Like, her mom threw her onto a helicopter. Mm. Like, just like, get her out of here, save ourselves. And of course, mom died and everything was really bad. She has grown up to be the world's ultimate badass, and much like Snake Plissken from Escape from New York, she has an eye patch. But unlike Snake Plissken, which has an eye patch, she's oh, she, missing she an has, eye. She's missing an eye, and she's yeah. got a sci-fi eye. Yeah, she's got a she's got an eye. She can pop out of her skull, and she can like put it on top of things, and then look through the eye on her wristwatch, uh, which is basically the iPhone. Let's not let's not mock. They thought this out, and um, it's an that's I, an I, was that a joke? You're making a bad pun, right? iPhone wasn't oh god it's an iPhone. i'm kind of glad you weren't because that's terrible <laughs> um but uh, but that's her gig that's her that's her gimmick that's what she does and uh but yeah she's a total badass she kills a bunch of people at the beginning and so mm. at when they find out two things in the movie they send her into scotland they find out one that the virus is coming back and coming back with a vengeance two not everyone in scotland is dead like they thought so if mm. not everyone in scotland is dead it means there must be a cure in there somewhere. So they right. send her and mm. like a tank. And it's clearly like the exact same armored transport from the movie Alien. Like, or Aliens. Like, it's the exact same one. Oh, is it? Oh, I didn't know. I, th- I, I think they took the turret off, but, but it looks yeah. exactly the same. Uh, they give her a bunch sure. of a bunch of Marines and they just put her in the in the tank and they send her into Scotland. And to, to look for Malcolm McDowell. Yeah, Malcolm specifically, Mc- who is who yeah. is the the Donald Pleasance character in this scenario, but yeah. uh, he's uh, he was a scientist who was left he, in Scotland when the wall closed, and they figure if he's still alive, he will actually know what the cure was because he probably cure, did yeah. it. So she's got to find him, and she's got to find him as fast as possible mm-hmm. because people are dying in England. Uh, the structure of this movie is maddening because mm-hmm. this this is like just a straight up exploitation movie. Oh yeah, and they're. They want to get it's like to eight exploitation. They want to get to the action movie, but they don't want to like reveal the premise for a long time. So we mm. first of all we have like a flashback where we get to see our main character is a little girl being separated from her mom, and it's really really tragic. Yeah, set and, up. Yeah. And then we have like a 
we're, we're dropped into the middle of the action where we get to see the Marines in action. Then we have a conversation as to like what the actual plot of the movie is back in the office of all of like the prime minister. Yeah. And there's uh city Fadil is there, uh, or I guess it was Alexander Siddig by this point uh, uh, yeah. from Star Trek deep space nine. And Bob Hoskins is there because why not? Yeah. Uh, he wasn't doing anything that week. Yeah, he'll, he'll, he'll do anything. Bob yeah. Hoskins. He spends half the movie just sitting next to Rona Mitra and smoking. Yeah. Like that's it. That's all they do. For, and, and then and he stands a, next to Alexander Siddig and gives some exposition. And then and there's, and, the, and there's a mean looking growly guy who's clearly the real antagonist of the movie, but they're trying to hide that for a long time. <laughs> Like, what, what do you think? I think we should kill them all, sir. You're the bad guy, aren't you? No, no, I'm just a supporting character. No, you're the bad guy. No, no, supporting, supporting. Look, hey, what's over there? Betray. Uh, <laughs> you couldn't see it. Whitney put like a rubber, like a, a mind, a rubber stamp with the word betray on oh, it. Oh, no, that was like a knife. I'm stabbing somebody oh, in the back. That was a betrayal <laughs> stamp. I betray you, stab you. <laughs> So that finally we get to the premise after like 20 minutes of movie and uh, yeah, they go into Scotland in their tank to, mm. to fight the people. The evil prisoners inside of the prison of Scotland. Probably the best But it's thing. Australia. Well, no, it's Scotland. <laughs> it's, it's Scotland, but it's it's Mad Max. Well, it's interesting because it's it's Mad Max. It's it's also um okay, so we got we got Mad Max in here. We got mm. aliens in here. We got um uh what do we got? We got the Road Warrior in mm. here. We've got um Knight Riders in here. Uh, we'll get like, to Night Riders in a second later yeah. on, but like it's basically a travel log through a whole bunch of low budget '80s sci-fi cult classics that someone watched like in a marathon when they were half awake, or maybe mm. they just dropped some acid, and then later on they just sort of remembered what they saw and they put it into one film. Like that's well, how Doomsday feels. I I feel like this was like somebody who really actually has a deep affection for things like the Road Warrior. Oh, clearly and, and it's affectionate. I, that's uh, but, true. I don't think it's cynical at all, but. Uh, Neil Marshall was too high on like, sort of like his own style that he said, no, but I want to put my own stamp on it, which mm. I think weakened it as an exploitation movie. Mm. It wasn't until we got to uh, the character of Saul, who is like the punk rock post-apocalypse leader mm -hmm. and like prances out on a stage to uh, the eighties hit good thing by the and, fine young cannibals. But yeah, by, and, and they and, start like roasting people and eating them alive and they're all dancing and having a good time. It's like, okay, this is what the whole movie should feel like. Yeah. I kind of like the idea of like, Hey, you know, all those Mad Max road warrior types who mm -hmm. like after the apocalypse dressed however they fucking wanted and did all kinds of crazy shit. Um, wouldn't kids today do it a little different? Wouldn't they just do it a little different? Wouldn't they have like, they a different be, vibe? They wouldn't be inspired by punk rock for one. Yeah, so like this, these ones actually have a different vibe, and it's actually kind of interesting. Like Saul's really the most interesting character in the movie because mm -hmm. you find out he's um, Malcolm McDowell's son, and he finds out pretty quick. Um, and he's actually mad at his dad for how he let them think that the rest of the world was dead mm. because he's been trying to make the most out of living in hell. And so he, what he wants to do is not unlike the Duke in New York in Escape from New York, yeah, yeah, a movie Isaac, with, Isaac Hayes character, a yeah. movie Neil Marshall clearly saw at least once. You think? You think he was inspired by Escape from New York a, li a little? Uh, he wants to get out of here, but you think he didn't take the script with Whiteout. <laughs> <laughs> difference is, difference is, Isaac Hayes wants to escape from prison. Saul wants to like live. Mm. He's never lived. Yeah. And it, but, but he's, yeah, but he's also a, a crazed cannibal guy with a mohawk. And but a big, all of these and, cannibals are yeah. like 20. So if they barely remember civilization, if they remember it at all. Mm. And that's actually more interesting to me as an idea than 
all of this like 80s sci-fi action travelogue. Yeah. Because the 80s sci-fi action travelogue, and it's so segmented. I kind of wish they would have combined them better. So that like there had been like that Mad Max. There's a climaxes with this big Mad Max chase, but can we do that with also like the knights on horseback that we're into later in the film? Like, can we can we mash it up rather than just make it all like a series of separate chapters? I actually would have preferred if it were more separate. Like the tones were really different because then it would have felt a little bit more like sorry to use the word a picaresque narrative where it's a little <laughs> bit a little bit more of a, a, like little chapter stops little mini movies throughout mm. so we get this sense that they're actually tra- traveling deeper and deeper into the heart of darkness essentially well that could have worked and, yeah and it, like they're sort of traveling across the landscape visiting different genres along the way a lot like the TV show Blood Drive yeah uh, which is a great show by the way yeah I really love Blood Drive we did um, a Cancel Too Soon episode mm. on that Google search that if you don't know about it was it. on that the show's... side it's on the sci-fi channel. That show is so worth seeking out. That and show kicked ass. It's, it's so crazy. If you like, like yeah. if you're one of the people who, who voted for this because you really like Doomsday, mm. uh, and you haven't the, seen Blood Drive, Blood Drive is Doomsday times twenty. Yeah, it's it, like, so every cool. episode is like four Doomsdays. Yeah, um, uh, but yeah, I, I think if yeah we got the sense of they were surviving like weirder and weirder things as they went on, that that would have made it a stronger film. Maybe uh, instead of okay, here's Mad Max, and then they go to Knight Rider's territory, and then they have to have a Mad Max chase on the way out again it's like yeah. it's like wait but we did that part already it felt like we did we did the cannibal we did like the the punk hmm. gang part of mad max we didn't do the car chase part of mad I, max. Uh, so I now they're doing right. the car chase to get out and it's um, and it's a fine finely photographed car chase yeah, car chase is pretty cool there's some yeah, cool there's gags a, in it um, cars that you know dive through school buses and stuff yeah yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure how that car still has a working battery after not being turned on for 20 years yeah they, they, uh, <laughs> they kind of they, sidestep that one <laughs> the car chase is with a bentley that they find in a crate that's been underground for like a couple yeah. decades i buy that it works i don't buy that it doesn't need an oil change and that the battery is still working yeah, like, at like all. if they found it and they like were able to jury rig something it's like yeah. oh i don't i have butter i'll use that for oil Oil, like, get us across. If they had yeah. had like, if you, if it wasn't in a situation where the, like the clock is ticking, like the bad guys are banging down the gate, and we just get in this car and drive off. If they had had like an hour or two, and we just see them tinkering, I don't even need to know what they did. I just believe that they tinkered, mm. and I'd be like, cool, all right, great. They jump started the battery using like the power grid. There was whatever. I don't care, but it would just justify it a little bit because I'm willing to give you a lot of benefit of the doubt. But once it starts like seeping into day to day, practical shit that even I know, I'm like, okay, but that car wouldn't work. <laughs> Come, on, dude. Come on. But yeah, after Mad Max beyond Thunderdome, they go into, uh, they get beyond Thunderdome. They go, they do. Can, can't we just get beyond Thunderdome? Yeah. And now they the go Rangoon in... version of this joke. <sighs> they, <laughs> They march into medieval town, and I think the castle is the Castle Og from Holy Grail. I think it might be the same castle. I wish they could have called attention to it, because it does look like mm-hmm. it. And the gag is that there, uh, the, half of society in Scotland has like is like living in, I don't know, some major metropolis, Edinburgh or somewhere, mm-hmm. like some big city. And they're living the Mad Max life. And the rest of them are living like a semi-peaceful middle ages type thing where Malcolm McDowell has installed himself as the king and he's got some knights in armor and everyone's like decided to not wear jeans anymore and just try wear medieval attire because and um but the gag is the, the castle was clearly a tourist attraction and they've still got like signs up everywhere that's like exit to the gift shop is like yeah. on the wall and that's kind of a funny <laughs> sort of it keeps you from getting like too absorbed in it and feeling like you're in a middle ages yeah, movie yeah. all of a sudden um 
But Malcolm McDowell, of course, reveals that, um, yeah, yeah, I actually didn't find a cure. It just turns out that some people are immune. That's that. That's yeah. it. Like, which, and, which isn't great, actually. That doesn't really help much. Uh, but they figure if they can get one person back to England, they might be able to reverse engineer a vaccine through them. Yeah, from their blood. If they have immunities, yeah. then you can make a vaccine. So it turns out Malcolm McDowell's daughter is kind of cool, so they bring her back after doing the uh, scene from Escape from New York where the hero has to fight a big giant guy to the death. Mm. Which we kind of already had with the punks, but yeah. Yeah, and uh, I will say this. Given the choice between the scene in the Escape from New York movie where the Snake Plissken character has to fight a big giant guy or the Snake Plissken character has to make like 20 baskets in a row or he'll get shot to death. Mm. I'm going to go with that the is, Escape from L.A. version. That, that is basketball baskets. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not basket weaving. You know, oh, yeah, he's, he's, so he's, yeah. he's making baskets. It's like, oh, is he basket weaving? Is like, if you, if you watch Escape from L.A., Escape from L.A. is also a, a, a complete like ripoff of Escape from New York. The difference is John the, Carpenter made both of them. And so he's using John, the exact John same formula. John Carpenter knew what he was doing. I yeah, think, he made I think, the exact same formula, but now he's not taking it seriously at all, which is one of the reasons why people hate that movie. But I think the, it's fine. It's I actually, think it's hilarious, but there's a bit... Where uh, Snake Plissken is like told, you, we have like a 10 second shot clock mm. where if you don't make a ba- if you don't, if you're just on alone on a basketball court and you got to make successive baskets on reverse hoops mm. every 10 seconds or we'll shoot you. And, and it ends with a full court lob that which, Kurt Russell actually made. I, and it, it's not like uh, one of those miracle stories. It's like, oh, we got it on the first take. No, they need like 100 takes yeah, before he got it. But he, but he did do it. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but that movie had like wit and humor. And that's something that I feel is kind of missing from Doomsday. There's I feel like no, it's not having as much yeah, fun with there, it because it's so broad. There's no, there's no really levity at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that was the, a big problem, I think, with that wave of neo-grindhouse movies mm-hmm. is they were so hellbent on showing you something kind of extreme with like a lot of gore and a lot of extreme ideas like cannibals and, and you know they, they for for whatever reason they decided not to sex things up at this point or just because mm-hmm. se- sex was erotic. out of vogue yeah. yeah erotic movies are still out of vogue um to, to quote uh, Cecil B. Demented they co-opted our sex and violence mm-hmm. and turned it into something not interesting uh, that there wasn't enough time to acknowledge the reason we go to these exploitation movies, and that's to have fun. Right. We're having fun watching violence. We're having fun watching sex. We're having fun with mm-hmm. an extreme premise. We're not buying it as like a legit dramatic uh, you know, I feel like there's two, opinion point. I feel like there's two, there's two sides to that. Mm-hmm. One is exactly what you're saying, which is, you know, we just think it's neat like yeah. when like oh we're chopping off people's heads and we're like throwing them at each other with like grenades in them or whatever that's obviously absurd the people who make it know it's absurd mm-hmm. and they only take it seriously enough in the narrative to like get you on board with it happening but there's also this little distance where you can just have fun and realize this is ridiculous mm-hmm. that's fine and doomsday doesn't have that doomsday has like just i think it's cool not yeah. i think it's fun i think it's cool and that's something that I think keeps it from really fully coming into its own. But the other thing I think keeps it from coming into its own is the better films from that early uh, post-Grindhouse era, where yeah. like it wasn't like super cheap. There was a little bit of money on hand for like the Road Warrior. They were able to get some cool stuff done, but still not expensive. Um, is a lot of those movies actually did come from a genuine place of wanting to explore ideas. Mm-hmm. 
you know, Mad Max, if you look at the original Mad Max, Mad Max isn't a post-apocalyptic story. Mad Max is a mid-apocalyptic story. Mad Max is about society still going. Yeah, People are still going to work. But society is in the process of crumbling. Yeah, I, I actually haven't seen it. It's it's underrated, I feel. Over, Road Warrior is, is a better film. Beyond Thunderdome is a crazier film. Fury Road is probably the best of the lot. But Mad Max is cool, and there's a reason it got all those cool sequels. And the thing is, is that, yeah, it starts out with Max Rokitansky. He's still a cop. There's still a society. But mm-hmm. over the course of the film, it basically ends. And to the point where there is no law anymore. And that scene is kind of a tragedy. It's seen as like, you know, listen, there's the world is going to hell. We're in the constant threat of nuclear, of, you know, nuclear destruction. We're in the constant threat of economic collapse and the loss of resources. And it just seems like life is getting more lawless by the day. What if that was it? And we just followed that to its natural conclusion and everything just all of society is realized to be kind of a lie and mm-hmm. we're reduced to violence for whatever reason we choose to do it, whether it's because we're bad people or because we're trying to defend ourselves from bad people. It's a cynical film, but it actually is about something. Is it incredibly intelligent about it? No, <laughs> but there's something there. It came from a genuine place. Doomsday doesn't feel like it came from a genuine place. Doomsday feels like... I actually, when I was watching Doomsday this time, I liked it when it came out, and it's still a watchable film. Like, it's mm-hmm. not, I'm not saying it's a bad film. We're talking about why it's not a great film. Um, I was actually thinking less of the sort of grindhouse era of like the late 2000s and more of the scary movie cycle, where all of a sudden mm-hmm. there was this wave after the movie Scary Movie came out of genre parodies where they would just sort of do a scene from a movie. Yeah, and that would be the whole gag, right? Um, not comment on it, just make a reference. Yeah, I think the best movie in that whole cycle, not another teen movie, actually did comment on, and that's why that one actually holds up pretty good. But the vast majority of them are just doing that scene from Meet the Parents, or mm. doing that scene from Scream, or they're doing that scene from I Know What You Did Last Summer. They have nothing to add to it. They have no observation to make. They're not even really subverting it. They're just doing it again and maybe making it like adding farts. Like, sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's not. Usually it's not. But there's something about it that's just kind of, and the, the I forget who it was, there's a commentary track on the DVD for Date Movie. Mm. Where they, and bless them, they invited them. They invited two critics who didn't like the movie to do a commentary <laughs> track on the official DVD to explain why they didn't like it. Uh-huh. Classy. I like that. And they talk about, uh, I think the phrase that they use, I wish I could remember who they were, I don't have it in front of me. Uh, they talk about what they call point and click movies. Where it's just basically, remember this? Hmm. Remember that? Got your money's worth, right? Oh, yeah. Cool. We're out of here. Like, that's all those movies were. And I feel like, whereas those, like, scary movie, date movie, epic movie, superhero movie, disaster movie, all that bullshit, they were doing it for a larf. Doomsday is kind of just doing the same thing, but wants you to take it serious. Like, hey, remember, remember this? Remember that? Remember Knight Riders? You mean that weird George Romero movie about people who pretend to be like knights errant in the woods? But they're bikers in the modern day. And it's not nearly as exciting as that sounds. Yeah, but now it's like a little more exciting. Yeah, you kind of just turned it into Army of Darkness, but without the the magic, didn't you? A little bit. Yeah, I. What? 
it's, it's, it just doesn't really add anything to it's, it. It's, it's missing. Yeah, it's missing brevity. It's missing wit. It's missing humor. It's still exciting. Yeah, it's, I, it's I, fun. I, I, like I said, I like all of the punk characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, Saul has like an enforcer character mm. who uh, gets beheaded far too early in the movie. Oh, she was a cool yeah. character. She was really standing out, and yeah, I don't she, think she got a the, name. Yeah, she just cool this Celtic cut, tattoos. Yeah, and... does, doesn't. Yeah, I don't think she even has any lines. She just sort of like cackles and has this really awesome outfit and is just a really capable purveyor of violence. It's like, okay, I want to see that badass looking character do more badass things. Because there really aren't a lot of villain characters. There's Saul. Mm -hmm. There's Malcolm McDowell. Malcolm McDowell has one giant knight dude. And and then there's the uh, guy back at the office. There's plenty. And he's he's like the central I'm talking about the post-apocalyptic zone. My point is that we, we meet all these characters, but like most of the characters are fodder. Like there's a bit where they rescue... Uh, uh, Malcolm Adele's daughter, Saul's sister from Saul's like dungeon, mm. and she says, "I will take you to my father. At least I'll help you try to find him." And uh, they they run away with her, and then she runs into this like handsome, studly dude with a bow and arrow who was like here to rescue her, and they know each other, and I I think maybe they were in love. And you see, all you see with this guy is that he's handsome and he's got a bow and arrow. And I'm like, oh, he's the bow and arrow guy. He's going to do some cool stuff with that bow and arrow. He died in the next scene, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And that's just, that's a lot of it. We meet all of these interesting characters. And, you know, in the movie Aliens, when you meet all of these, like, colonial marines and they're larger than life and they're full of braggadocio and machismo and we get to know them for a bit. You know, they're, they're, they're real characters. They're superficial characters, but they're really superficial. Like they're they're doing it in a genuine way, not because they're badly written, but because they're just, they're, they're tough guys. Yeah. And we get to know them for a bit and we have fun with them and they have interesting dialogue. And then when the majority of them die in the first action sequence, it has weight because Oh shit! Okay, first off, we liked a lot of those characters. We sp- we spend a lot of time with them doing not action stuff. Yeah, like they were just having conversations. But their conversations were about how badass they are and about how they're ready for any action thing. So mm. that when they're immediately killed by an enemy that they didn't understand and dramatically underestimated, mm-hmm. you know, it's the Vietnam allegory in the film. But um, it really just all of a sudden takes it from this is going to be a cool action movie to nope still a horror movie hmm. just the, the action guys are going to be the are just going to be freaking out now because they don't know what they're doing anymore and they're completely unprepared for an enemy like this yeah we have that scene where you meet all the characters but we spend no time with them they just get in a car hmm. the best part of the movie or the funniest part of the movie is they get like a mile into scotland and then they have to stop because there's like the cows have just gone like wild. They've just been breeding and just been spreading all everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And they can't get very far because they're just surrounded by cows. That's funny. But um, then they immediately go into a, like a, a big city, search around a little bit. All but like two or three people aside from Rona Mitra are killed. Yeah. And it doesn't have the impact because we didn't spend time with them. And we didn't even see them really make a name for themselves or a mark or even just say, we're nonstop badasses and even an army of cannibals can't kill us. No, they just, they just die. Yeah, that's it. Doesn't just, really have any impact. They just die. It's just, again, it's going through the motions of all this stuff, but it's not really understanding why it worked. So instead, we just get this kind of superficial retread of a lot of stuff that even on a superficial level, is neat. That final car um, sequence is badass. Yeah, that's just cool. It's a really good 
Yeah. Chase scene. That's yeah, neat. I mean, yeah. it's maybe a little chaotically edited for my taste, but it's still cool. Mm. Like it's, I like it. Mm. Um, yeah, it just doesn't. It just doesn't quite work. And <sighs> I guess it's, that's it, really. <laughs> I, it, I it's it's been called like a, a cult movie. I think I saw it. At a, I didn't see it at a midnight screening, but I saw like that it was showing at midnight screenings. I totally buy uh, that uh, like, they would do okay at a midnight like, maybe, screening. Maybe yeah. two years after it came out, where like the audience was still like really passionate about it, and I think it might have shrunk in estimation. So I wanted to kind of reconsider it now, mm. see how it how it stood up, what was going on with this movie, and it feel and even though it's not all that old, it feels a little dated to me. Yeah, not because it's dealing with old material that actually should make it feel kind of timeless. The yeah. way it treats the material, the tone, specifically the photography and the editing that mm-hmm. it was using, was something that was very much of its time, and that's something that we've even moved past, even in in the recent times since two thousand eight. How do you tell a two thousands action movie if you put Evanescence over it? Would it still mm. make sense? <laughs> A, it probably has evanescence uh, anyway. But if you take it out, if you just attach it, uh, it to any action it. sequence, it'd be like, yeah, that fits. That's if, cool. If there's a dark scene and there's a lot of green filter, if it has really oh, yeah. grainy photography, if they're shaking the camera far too much, mm-hmm. and if they're editing far too much, yeah, that's that's a your, good your good two thousand action, action movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, 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 I, I feel bad like, for Rona Mitro because this is clearly like yeah. her big breakout like thing. Because Underworld, you know, that wasn't her franchise. Mm. Um, she's good in it actually but like that wasn't her franchise this is her big action movie moment yeah and she cuts a fine figure like she looks believable doing action stuff unfortunately she's not asked to do any more than that right she has no inner world she has no wants or desires she has no meaningful regrets or pain or anguish or love or interests Mm. really she just is tough and does stuff She's tough and does stuff. That should have yeah. been the title. Yeah. She's tough and does stuff. Well, at least that's the tagline. But like <laughs> and and she's good at that, but like it's just they don't I don't know if it's just wasn't a great screenplay to begin with. I'm willing to believe that. Mm. Um or maybe there was more of that and they cut it out because they wanted to focus more on like the badass actionness. Yeah. Who can say? But it definitely doesn't do her and her career any favors because she this was her chance to really shine and the material just isn't there. All she gets to do is look cool doing whatever the story tells her to do. Yeah. Which she does. But that's not nearly as exciting to an audience as getting wrapped up in why a person's doing it or getting wrapped up in their natural charisma or their wit. Mm-hmm. We don't really have any of that, and it's a shame. Um... So yeah, that's Doomsday. Sorry we didn't like this one more. Um, it is fun. It is definitely not a bad watch. And if you want to watch it uh, you know, for Halloween or any other time, I think you'll have an enjoyable time. But mm. I don't think this is like a cult classic. I think this is just a kind of neat movie. It's kind of neat. Yeah. I, I agree. Yeah, it's watchable. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, that is a Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club. Uh, next week... We will be back with reviews of a ton of new movies, uh, including the new requel of The Craft. Oh, geez. The Craft Legacy is coming out this week. It was supposed to be a big theatrical release, and of course it is not. And uh, they're releasing it on video on demand. Uh, It is technically taking place after the events of the original The Craft. But But it's it's, also kind of a remake. Well, it's just the same kind of thing happens again, where a bunch of teenagers Mm. get supernatural powers and they're up and shall come. 
Um, I'm very curious to see it. I have mixed feelings about the original. There's a lot of things I really like about it. I also feel like it hasn't aged well in some regards. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious about that. There's also a bunch of new uh, horror movies coming out, including like Come Play and Spell and a whole bunch of other stuff. And we're going to try to see as much of it as possible uh, and review it for you next week. On the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, uh, this week we were looking at the films available on CBS All Access. That's right. Which is uh, soon to become Paramount+, Plus, but right now it's still CBS All Access. And they have an interesting assortment of films. It's not particularly comprehensive. It seems like they're mostly there for TV right now. But... Um, but, we were able to find some classics. It's, it's Paramount, so you got a lot of Paramount classics in there. Yeah, so we, we picked uh, four classic films uh, on the CBS All Access streaming service, and we asked our patrons to vote at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. And uh, they voted for, and it was thin, it was a close one, uh, Alfie, the uh, 1960s uh, romantic comedy, fourth wall breaking classic starring Michael Caine as a womanizer who eventually might Learn, realize that that's not a good way to live. Yeah. All right. So I'm told I've actually never seen that one. That one was my pick. Mm. Um, I haven't seen it either. I've, okay. And there was a remake and I haven't seen the remake. So yeah. well, there you go. Um, so we'll be, uh, we'll be talking about that one next week. In addition to a whole bunch of new releases. Thank you again, everybody for listening. We really appreciate you. We're, we're grateful to you for joining us here mm-hmm. at the critically acclaimed network. We hope you enjoy all our other shows. Uh, if you want to head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, you too can vote for future episodes of this and other shows. Uh, you also have access to, depending on the level that you subscribe to, a bunch of exclusive content like commentary tracks, podcasts about Star Trek, podcasts about the Oscars, podcasts about Disney, podcasts about Batman, and a bunch of other stuff besides. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm getting a little hoarse. We've been podcasting for a while. Uh, We're also on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And uh, I think that's it. So never forget... Everyone's a grip. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?